How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? It's going good, going good, and we've got quite a lot in store for everyone today. Oh, we really do. We really do. And I mean, in here, here we were thinking that our last episode, we had quite a bit to talk about. Boy, I, I tell you, I, you know, we've been doing this show for almost five years, and I think this tops it right here. This is, without question, the single longest episode that we have ever done. How long is it? So I finally finished editing it the other night. It came out three hours and five minutes. That's not just the full episode. That's not including the intro and the outro. That's just including the segments themselves. Wow. Yeah. But you know what, though, Tim, even though it came out to be three hours, it was worth every minute because trust me, we've got a great episode today. Our episode today is our second part of our 2021-2022 season preview episode. And today's episode, we are going to be looking at the five American teams in the Atlantic Division, the Buffalo Sabres, Detroit Red Wings, Boston Bruins, Tampa Bay Lightning, and the Florida Panthers. And I can't thank our guests enough for doing this. So in chronological order, a big shout out once again to Melissa Burgess from Dive of the Blade, Jake Rivard from Winging It Motown and Last Word on Puck, Mark Allred from the Black and Gold Production, Matthew Estevez from Raw Charge, and Todd Little from Litter Box Cats. Yeah, and in case we didn't say anything nice enough about Buffalo Sabres, I did see a fun news story that'll make Buffalo fans day. So the AAA affiliate of the Jays, the Buffalo Barons, have a bat dog that collects bats and brings them back to the dugout. They have a new dog. And he tried to pick up a ball that was about to be thrown, and it stopped the game. I did see that. That, <laughs> that made my day. Honestly, he's such a good boy, though. I guess. So if you're a Buffalo fan listening to this, go watch that, then come back. And also while you're doing that, go watch some of Melanie Martin's videos too. She's she's fantastic. Honestly, she is going to be the best thing about the Sabres team this year. It's just some of the contact she's going to be putting out. Yeah, especially because Eichel's all out. Oh yeah, it, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long season for Buffalo. But I mean, that goes without saying with all the drama they had in this offseason. Now, before we segue into the segments, Tim, I think we should talk a little bit about the segments themselves because honestly, like I said, this was a lot of fun to record. And Yes, I remember even at this time last year when we did our, the 2021 season preview show. Sorry, it's no time is such a mess for me right now. I'm, I'm almost of the mindset. Oh, yeah, it's still 2020, but nope, we're almost nope. 2022. So I want to get your thoughts first of all on the segments themselves, because we really did have some great people to talk with. And honestly, it was just a lot of fun to talk about teams that we didn't even really watch at all last yeah. season. Well, that's the thing is that. The episodes we recorded last, sorry, for the first part of this uh, season preview bit, were all teams that we got intimately familiar with last year because we watched them like seven, eight times each. And for the Senators, 56. Uh, we didn't see any, we didn't really watch the American teams last year except for Tampa and the playoffs. And I felt I learned a lot about all of these teams. Uh, and frankly, uh, all of these were really fun to record too. There's great talent uh, covering all of these teams. 
There really is. There really is. And you know what? You can definitely tell when you listen to these segments just how much fun that we really had chatting with these with our guests. Because honestly, and like I said, I'll openly admit, like we didn't watch any of the games last year other than the Tampa Bay Lightning in the finals. We didn't really follow any of the American teams. So it was a great, and you could tell, I think certain segments, most notably Tampa, you can definitely tell we were just kind of screwing around in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> but it was so much fun. And I'm not going to spoil anything for that segment because it was it was that great. You know, and obviously getting Mark Allred on because Mark always pumped our show on Twitter. He was always pumping us on social media. And yeah, I really look hope. Hopefully, we look forward to maybe working with one of their shows this upcoming season. Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. It would be, though. It would be. I mean, could you imagine? We would just be sitting with those guys, and we would just be like, they would be like, it was 4-1, and we could say, it was 5-1. Well, imagine. Imagine if somehow there is a Leafs-Seds playoff series, and there was an it was 4-1. No, at that point, they would top it 6-1. That's true. Yeah, because that's – and I was thinking about that because, you know, the Leafs have blown three big leads. 3-1 to Montreal, 4-1 to Boston, 5-1 to Ottawa. Oh, sorry. It's like the team that keeps on giving that. I swear to God. Yeah. But the only comment I could really make about these segments doesn't any, doesn't relate to anything that we did – on this episode, it was in the last episode. I don't know about you, Tim, but I feel my life is a little bit richer knowing the fact that we got Ian Mendez to say fuck. <laughs> my life is a little bit more complete knowing that. So good. Oh my god. And it was, and we were just like, we were sitting here and we're like, oh my god, is he gonna do it? No, he's not gonna do it. And he did it. We're like, oh my god, he actually did it. Well, it's like I guess it's just at that point, you know, it's just like, yeah, podcast is just a bunch of dudes, right? Yeah. I swear, man, we need to get Brent Wallace on to ask him about that story now, because that would be amazing. Who ordered this milk? (laughs) Who the fuck did this? I could tell, and you know what's funny? I can oddly see Wally just walk into the practice facility saying that. Uh, So good. See, this is this is what the listeners come for, Tim. You can tell that we were having so much fun doing these segments. Now, honestly, I can't feel that there's a better way to segue into these segments. So without further ado, Tim, let's throw it over to Melissa Burgess from Die by the Blade. <laughs> Kicking off part two of our season preview show, representing the Buffalo Sabres of the Atlantic Division, is the managing editor for the Sabres blog, Die by the Blade. Please welcome to the show, from Buffalo, New York, Melissa Burgess. Melissa, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, happy to come on. This is actually my first gig since taking over as managing editor, so happy to be here. 
And we're really excited to have you on, not just because this is the very first time that we've ever had a Sabres representative on the show when doing our season preview shows, but also this is the first time that we've ever got anybody from Die by the Blade. So very excited to have you on. Now, we've got a lot of stuff to talk with you about today, and we're actually going to start off with something we'll... the happiest question you'll face in this interview. Yes. We'd like to get the positive questions out of the way first. That's just the way we roll. So one of the things I always look forward to anytime we get to work with somebody new on the show is we'd like to take a few minutes and just get to know them a little bit more. And doing this show has really allowed me to find out how people became fans of their team, whether they cheer for the Senators or cheer for another franchise. In regards to the Sabres, I would love to know, how did you become a fan of the Buffalo Sabres? Yeah, so I've been a hockey fan, really, since I was about five years old. Um, My mom was always really into hockey, still is to this day. Um, She was kind of, you know, she was a Sabres fan from the beginning. So from, you know, the 70s and everything. Like, there's newspaper clippings of her standing in line waiting for playoff tickets in the 70s and all that. So... I kind of just got it from her from a young age. We were watching games. We were going to games. I don't know. I just picked up on it and I loved it. And I loved it ever since. Like, you know, some of my earliest memories, because obviously like you can't remember when you're like a really young kid, but some of my earliest memories are when we would take trips downtown every week or so in the summer and see the building of what is now Key Bank Center going up when the odd had you know, it was closing and, and the new arena was building up. I, I never got to see a game at Memorial Auditorium, unfortunately. I will always regret that. But the, you know, the beginning of the new arena was really the beginning of my watching hockey. Um, so, yeah, I just I just loved it. And, you know, I remember going to a few games when I was young, like a few stand out. And, well, actually, <laughs> it's funny that I'm on this podcast because one of the ones that stands out most is a game against Ottawa. So, <laughs> And, you know, I just, I loved it. Like some people lose, you know, lose that passion for it as they get older, they get into other hobbies and things that, you know, it falls by the wayside. But me, I kind of just dove right in and it's, it's never left. Now you were saying that one of the most memorable games you saw was versus Ottawa. Do you mind telling us which game that was? Yes. So I don't know, like, I don't know how old you guys are, how long you've been sentenced fans or anything. But it was the Ron Tugnut-Derek Plant game. Okay. You know what's funny that you mentioned this, Melissa? We actually had Ron Tugnut on the show, and we got to talk to him about that. And Because that was always the big thing with me growing up watching that play, was that it looked like the puck went right through his glove. And we got the chance to talk with him about that, and he just basically said that the catcher that he was using was the one that he only used for games. He didn't use it during practices, and it was just so worn down that he couldn't use it during practices. And so when that happened, it looked like he caught it, like as he put it, it was like an ice cream cone catch in baseball where you have the ball at the top of your mitt, but the velocity hit it and pulled back, and the puck bounced off. And I was just like, oh, just having to relive that moment as a fan, it was just like, oh, it's brutal. But that is one of those moments, and I even said to him, like, that was a moment that just started the trend of the Sens play a heartbreak every year. And, you know, Buffalo has been a key reason for that. I won't sit here and deny that, you know. Looking at you, (laughs) Bombadil. So another thing we always love hearing about doing these segments is how 
said person got into writing or doing their podcast. Now, I understand that you quite recently took over as the managing editor for Die by the Blade, following some time working as a staff writer. How did the opportunity come about for you to become their editor? And how did you originally become involved with the site? Yeah, so just to go back, though, before, just about the, the Ron Tugnut game. So I was there, you know, I was like six, almost seven years old at the time. But I remember, like, my parents, my mom, like, scraped together our last money. Like, we got tickets. You know, I'm pretty sure we were high up in the 300 level. But it was just, like, that energy. Like, I wish I could feel that energy every day because it was amazing. But I also remember little me, you know, six years old, I felt so bad for Ron Tugnut because you could just see, like, and I, I can replay it in my head, his reaction after as he looked back and saw that buck rolling in. And I just felt so bad, like, oh, my gosh, it's so heartbreaking. But also, like, we just won. Oh, my God. Um, so that's my that's my story for that. As for how I got into the position of managing editor, editor at Dive by the Blade, uh, so I've been covering hockey for, well, 13 years now, something like that. Pretty much the Sabres for about as long at one place or another. Um, a couple of years ago, I want to say it would be about three and a half or four years ago now. Um, actually, right when Chad, who was my predecessor as editor, right when he took over as editor, it was pretty much when I joined the squad as a staff writer. I had been away from writing about the Sabres for a year or two, but was ready to get back into covering the NHL. So, you know, Die by the Blade seemed like a good established place, SB Nation and everything. So, you know, got through a couple of years as a staff writer. And when Chad mentioned that he was ready to, you know, move on, people said I was the next logical step. And and I think so. I agree. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, I look forward to, like, someone told me yesterday that I clearly have a passion for hockey. And I never want to lose that. You know, like, I think sometimes we – we get so used to things or they become more of a job that you lose that passion. But I've always had a passion for writing and I've always had a passion for hockey. Like that's my personality. So being able to combine those two things and, you know, have a, an audience and everything, it's like a dream come true. So I'm really excited for it. And we have a great team and, you know, I, I do other sports writing as well. I also cover women's hockey for the Victory Press, and I work with the Canisius College men's ice hockey team, uh, and I also work with the Buffalo Junior Sabres youth hockey organization. So I'm kind of all over the place, but it's pretty much like if there's a hockey in Western New York, I'm probably involved in one way or another. So Nice. Now, do you write for the Buffalo Buttes at all as well? I don't write for them, but I cover them okay. for the Victory. I cover them and the, did I say, no, I said women's hockey. I almost said the NWHL and it's not the NWHL anymore. And I'm still getting used to the new name. Um, but I cover women's hockey for the victory press and I have since 2015. So, um, it's, it's fun and it's very different than covering men's hockey. So in what way is it different covering men's hockey from women's hockey other than the gender? Yeah. So I, I don't want to make it sound weird, but like, I think the women are more appreciative of the coverage because in a sense, they're not used to it, right? Like they're, they're professionals, but professional women's hockey is still in its infancy. And obviously the last few years has been kind of up and down. 
but like after every interview I've ever done with a women's hockey player, whether it's a, a media scrum after a game or a one-on-one, the player is always thank me. And you don't necessarily get that in, in pro men's hockey because they, you know, get so much media attention and they have so many people that are around them. Whereas these women are like, you're telling our story, you're getting our sport out in there into the world. So I think they're a little bit more grateful or they just don't take it for granted as much, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like up here in Canada this past summer when Team Canada won in the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the World Cups. World Cups. World, 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 yeah, World Championship. Oh, thank you. Where Team yeah. Canada won gold. And you can tell like these girls were so appreciative that the media, like the mainstream media up here that's always so heavy on hockey was covering women's soccer. You can tell how appreciative and how much they loved it. Yeah, and I mean, obviously part of that is just like the disparity in coverage is that like there's always more money for men's sports. There's always more TV coverage, more newspaper space and all that. So I think the women are, are appreciative of anything they can get, which it stinks that it is that way because it's like you're you know getting pennies and you're thankful for them. But I think that's a big difference is it's, it's a different um, rapport that you have with the players like that. And, of course, this year is going to be so different because of COVID, but um, looking forward to getting back to it. So, Melissa, this is the time of the show where we would talk about the 2021 season and we would get your thoughts as well, as well as your expectations for 2022. However, instead, all I'm going to do is play this. Because, yeah, that just... Now, the reason I play that is because... I've been watching hockey my entire life, and I don't think I've ever seen a team that fell harder on their face than the Buffalo Sabres in 2021. And absolutely... 14-15 Sabres? No. This is worse. Because I nothing went right at all for this team. The acquisitions of Taylor Hall and Eric Stahl were busts. Rasmus Dolan had a brutal season with a team worse, minus 38 plus minus. Jack Eichel was injured for majority of the year. And not to mention, they tied the 2003-04 Penguins for the longest losing streak at 18 games. With their playoff drought reaching a decade, most of their big names are either gone or trying to force a deal out of town. And now with the rebuild now having to be rebuilt, I have to ask, was the 2021 season finally the breaking point for Sabres fans? I think to a point it was. I think for it's kind of been that way for a lot of years, right? Like every year has been a breaking point. And then it's year after year. It's just like, oh, is it going to get better? No. Oh, is it going to get better? No, it actually is going to get worse. <laughs> just kidding. We're, yeah, no, we're getting worse. You know, and then, yeah, like you said, there was just so much about last year that went wrong. Like when when the Sabres got Taylor Hall, I was I was genuinely like, so excited. You know, it's, it's Taylor Hall. And like he wanted to come to Buffalo. He chose to sign in Buffalo. And then it just was hot garbage. And, you know, I hope he does well elsewhere and, and all that. But same thing with Eric Stahl. Like, I I knew he was, you know, maybe not going to be as good as Hall. But, like, I was excited to have him on Buffalo. It was amazing to me. Like, this is Eric Stahl. And he's coming to Buffalo. And he wants to come to Buffalo. And then it just, nothing. And, you know, it was just like every... Every step, every position 
there was something that was just brutal. I know we're going to talk about Rasmus Ristolainen later. That was brutal. <laughs> the And, you know, just like in general, the COVID situation, uh, thankfully, was not, they, the Sabres were not impacted as much as some other teams, but there was definitely an impact uh, there when that whole thing with the Devils happened and everything got spiraled out of control. Um, so I think this year is the breaking point for Sabres fans in a way just because of so much that has built up to this point. Like, the past few seasons have been terrible. This season doesn't really promise to be any better based on like who they've acquired over the offseason and the trades they've made. You know, we'll talk about the Eichel trauma, and it's just like there's so much building up and at some point, when you keep building like that, something's going to break, right? So it's going to break. <laughs> As someone who's kind of working in an editor position, I'm sure, like at a blog, I'm sure you see a lot of comments on the blog. What's like the most common complaint about the team that you see? Like, what's the thing that's really kind of, what's the burn the bonnet right now? Like the most common burn the bonnet, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say there's a lot. I mean, right now it's, it's the Eichel deal drama whatever i mean we're you know training camp starts in a few days and nothing's happened um and i think that that's just like indicative of all these other problems like it's a failure to keep taylor hall around a failure to work well with eric stall um jeff skinner like you know i i forget i genuinely forget that jeff skinner is still on the team because <laughs> i remember that he was willing to you know go to seattle if it meant that the Sabres could sign some of their other young guys. Rasmus Dahlin is still not signed. <laughs> like, season starts, you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, but I think a lot of people right now are, are focused on the Eichel's drama, and um, especially with training camp coming up, that's just going to be more refurbished drama. Yeah, and especially as a fan like myself for the Ottawa Senators, and we saw the drama that just surrounded this team with the Eugene Melnick comments that he has made over the years. We kind of get where Buffalo is with a breaking point, and Sens fans felt the same way with Melnick, and you saw it with the Melnick out billboards. You saw that with fans just stop going to games, like just being so upset. Now, speaking about Eugene Melnick, we've got to move along here and talk about Probably another very infamous owner in the NHL in Terry Bagula. And with everything that seems to be going wrong with Buffalo, ranging from bad trades, signings, the inability to draft really outside of the first round, and the bad hirings of both GMs and head coaches, all of this has come under the ownership of Terry Bagula. And Terry has been somebody who's an interesting figure when talking about this tenure as both owner of the Sabres and the NFL's Buffalo Bills. Without question, neither team would be in Buffalo today without him. And... I think for me, his inability to not meddle with Sabres hockey operations is the number one reason why this team is the way it is. And it's been widely criticized as the team has gone through three GMs, six head coaches since taking over. Overall, what has been your thoughts on the Bagulas Sabres ownership so far? I think when the Pagulas took over, you know, first the Sabres and then Bills, people were optimistic. You know, you have this this guy who seems passionate. He says, you know, starting today, the goal of the Buffalo Sabres is going to be to win a Stanley Cup. And and now, you know, it's been years later, and you look, and it's like, where have the Sabres gone since then? They, they've gone absolutely nowhere. And I think, you know, what you said about their ability or inability to not meddle in the hockey operations side of things, I think that's absolutely true. 
Um, I also think over the last few years, it's become kind of evident that they're funneling more money and more tension into the bills. And, you know, partly as a result of that, but also partly just, that's also partly a reason why they're funneling more money is because the bills are being more successful, right? So like the bills are having some success. So the Pagulas are funneling more money and attention and time into them. And because they're funneling more money and attention into time into them, the bills are becoming more successful. And the Sabres have kind of just fallen by the wayside a little bit. And, you know, so it's definitely been a very disappointing time with him as owner, with them as owners. I, I, also, I agree, like, absolutely without him, the Sabres would not be in Buffalo. The Bills would not be in Buffalo. And I, I know that fans are grateful for that. But at the same time, at what point does it stop being grateful, right? Like, it, it's like if someone hands you, you know, someone makes you dinner, right? Your, your parent makes you dinner and then, you know, whatever, I don't know, does something terrible. And they said, well, I made you dinner and it's like, great, <laughs> but you made me dinner that gave me food poisoning, let's say, or something. And it's like, be grateful for what I gave you, even though I haven't given you anything good since. And um, it's, it's brutal, but at this point, I don't see any other ownership in Western New York or in Buffalo that would be in place for that. Um, you know, I know the Bills have their own whole drama going on with a new stadium, and there was, like, a report that if the money wasn't given that they could move to Austin, and that was a threat and everything. So there's just a lot going on around Buffalo sports. But I think Pagula's tenure as owner has been underwhelming. Let's put it that way. I think um, he's – involved in a lot of the behind the scenes decisions that he doesn't need to be. And I think that they also like being out there in the public to be recognized when something good does happen, even if, you know, it maybe wasn't their doing directly, but they want the recognition for the positive. Um, but the whole rule of tenure is, you know, tied in with not just the Sabres and the Bills, but they have done a lot for the city of Buffalo, but then there's also been some crappy parts of, what they've done for the city of Buffalo. Like they, they built this amazing rink complex, Harbor Center, which is across from the Sabres Arena. It's world-class. Um, they had a franchise restaurant in there that closed and there was a whole bunch of drama around that, around COVID and people being laid off and things. Um, I don't know. I could go on about like billionaires and <laughs> capitalism and um, the ethics of all that, but I think if they just step to the side and let the people who, you know, are going to do the jobs, do the jobs, that the Sabres will be a lot better off. Well, and it's funny that you use the word underwhelming when talking about the Bagula's tenure as ownership of the Sabres, because honestly, an mitigated disaster would be more appropriate. But go back to talking about his tenure as the Bills owner is that we saw that early on where he was kind of the same way where he had to meddle with football operations in Buffalo until I believe it was Sean McDermott came in and then they've built this team up. They draft Josh Allen. The defense was great. The offensive thing, they bring in Stefan Diggs and look at the Buffalo Bills. Now they were legit. What a quarter away from making the Super Bowl last year. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like it's hard. It's heart wrenching because, it's like, we love to see the Bills succeed. We love to see the Bills, you know, have Josh Allen and, and Diggs and everyone and go on this run, but not at the expense of the Sabres. 
and that's almost what it feels like here is like it's which of the children is your favorite child and it's the bills well i mean it's the one that's the most successful right and being senators fans we don't really have that in ottawa where really it's just the, the Sens are the only big force franchise that we have. And, I mean, other than that, we've got the Ottawa Red Blacks at the CFL. But it just seems like the success of the Sabres and the Bills, in my personal opinion, are always intertwined. If you look at the 90s, when the Bills went on their four Super Bowl runs and then the Sabres went on their cup run in 99. But we don't need to talk about that because, you know, if you want to trigger somebody in Buffalo, just mention wide right or no goal. So we're going to move on and talk about some off-ice drama Jack Eichel. Now, despite this offseason having storylines regarding the NHLers going back to the Olympics, the Seattle Kraken expansion, the big storyline has to be the off-ice drama surrounding Jack Eichel and his wanting out of Buffalo. That says going second overall in 2015, Eichel, hands down, has been the Sabres' best player. I Like, nobody would ever dispute that. And I honestly think... I can't think of another player in that franchise's history that... The team has just wasted his talent so badly as they have. And personally for myself, I've never been a big Jack Eichel guy. I always thought he was a bit cocky. I didn't think he had the clout early on when he wanted Dan Bosma. Well, it was the right move to make. But I honestly just think that he's going by this the wrong way when he started his Twitter account. And the first tweet he sends out is, I want out. Now, I would love to get your thoughts on the off-ice drama surrounding Jack Eichel and... Where do you where is this whole thing right now with him in Buffalo? Yeah, I, I I mean, I think things are kind of at a hard position right now. Training camp's coming up, and the report from an AP source and John Warrow is that Eichel is going to report to camp, um, which we kind of figured was going to happen. I mean, right now there were there were basically two options, right? Either he doesn't report to camp, and then the Sabers suspend him. Or he reports to camp, which he's likely going to, but he's not going to pass a physical because of, of the injury. So the Sabres can then put him on IR, and then it's kind of a win-win for both te- both sides, right? Because Eichel will still get paid. The Sabres don't have to have him around the room, um, and hopefully they can, you know, work out a trade. But, uh, but based on, you know, what Kevin Adams said earlier this summer, it's in the Sabres' hands, right? They have the upper hand here. Eichel is under contract. He... You know, he can say he wants out, he could talk, he can do whatever he wants, but in the end, it's the Sabres who get to make the deal, and it's up to them if they want to or if they just want to make him sit and wait. I think the whole situation surrounding, you know, him wanting a surgery and the Sabres medical staff not wanting him to get that surgery, I think that's a really tough position. Um, I know contractually, you know, the, the NHL, he's obligated to do what the Sabres doctors think is best um, like that's written in the contract and it doesn't come up very often that you know this kind of situation happens where the player wants to do something different but when it does you know that's when that part of the contract really hurts um, and you know you have to think like it's about the Sabres but it's not just about the Sabres or it's not just about Eichel's time with the Sabres it's his future right it's his life like an injury doesn't just affect you on the ice, it affects you off the ice too. And it doesn't just affect today or tomorrow, but three months down the line. It's been crazy just over the last few months watching this play out and, you know, not really play out really, right? Just it's been like a stalemate of, of Eichel getting a second opinion and then the Sabres saying no and 
Michael's still wanting this trade and or this surgery and the Sabres still saying no and we've been waiting like is there going to be a trade or what and still nothing and I think right now this makes sense for the Sabres because of course they, they want to trade him which you know I think they, they do want to trade him obviously they would like to have pieces but it's in their court to kind of get the best deal that they can and I, I don't know what that deal is um, I, I wrote something a, a month or two months ago or whatever and it basically said there's no ideal trade target for Jack Eichel because in an ideal world, you don't trade a player like Jack Eichel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I do think the Sabres have wasted his prime years. I think he came into the NHL with these high hopes and, you know, on a, a pedestal, which also comes with its own, you know, harsh expectations to meet. And of course, anytime you don't meet those expectations, um, even on a, a terrible team, people are going to harp on you for it. But I think where we go from here is Eichel doesn't, you know, doesn't pass his physical. He goes on IR, and the Sabers still try to work out a trade for him at some point. Um, you know, he probably gets traded, and then he probably does get to have the surgery that he wants, uh, which would be the best situation for him. It, you know, has a recovery time, and then he comes back and probably tears it up, and you know, probably goes and wins a cup somewhere. Go figure. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's, it's been sour just the last few years. You know, people had a lot of expectations for him. And, and like I said, anytime you have a high kick like that and you put those expectations and that pressure on them and they can't immediately, you know, take you to the top, it, it hurts. Um, and people don't always understand that, like, you know, these are kids and they're coming into the, the NHL and you're putting all this pressure on them. But I think that the best bet or the best ideal outcome for the Sabres is getting a good trade um, and not an in-division trade, of course, because um, I think obviously we would want to avoid that. Are you and, worried that something like the Taylor Hall trade is going to happen with Jack Eichel? I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's so hard to gauge where things are in terms of a trade like that. And then, of course, like somebody said, somebody asked me, like, well, so what if he gets traded? How do you know he's going to have the surgery he wants? But I think if a team would be willing to trade for him, because, of course, a team would have to be willing to trade for him, they're not going to trade for him and then say, well, now we're in charge of you and you still can't get what you want. Sorry, because, like, what's that going to do? So I think wherever he goes, he's going to get the surgery he wants and, you know, he'll probably have some success from there. And. Sabres fans will watch with envy and sigh and just say, well, we botched that one, didn't we, guys? <laughs> well, with a lot of the off-ice drama, do you think that the relationship between the team and Jack Eichel is beyond repair at this point? Honestly, I think so. Um, you know, I, I think just a few months ago, even, it was on a short leash, you know, and then I think just the, the statement that his agent, who is no longer his agent now, um, but the statement that his agent tweeted out, like, late on, I think it was, like, a Friday night, just kind of sent things over the edge. It was just, like, this unnecessary drama. And I don't see a situation where you would be able to have him back on the team. Like, I don't – like, I think it's going to be weird that he's – I understand why he's reporting for camp. I understand, you know, the dynamics of that. But I can't imagine the Sabres having him in their locker room or, or among the players. Like, 
he can't lead this team as a captain anymore when it's been clear that he wants out and that him and the team want two different things. It's, it's just too sour of a relationship for both sides to, to have any success going forward. So moving away from Jack Eichel to another second overall pick in Sam Reinhardt. And another storyline regarding the Sabres this past offseason that went kind of under the radar was the trade sending Sam Reinhardt to the Florida Panthers for a 2022 first and goalie Devin Levy. Like Eichel, Reinhardt is another number two pick whom Buffalo has so far wasted his career as he has been nothing but a consistent 50 plus point guy every season and a true number two center on the team. In regards to the trade itself, I honestly thought Buffalo got fleeced in this as they essentially gave Florida a guy who can either be a top-line right winger or a fantastic number two center behind Sasha Barkov. In regards to the Reinhardt deal, what was your thoughts on his tenure as a Sabre and what was your thoughts on the trade itself? Yeah, I was super sad to see Reinhardt go and I think a lot of Sabres fans were. A lot of Sabres fans really like him. Um, you know, you talked about how good he is, how good he was during his time here, like consistent, put up points, just a great, great energy. Um, and, you know, to see him trade it and not really get any NHL pieces back, it, it stinks. Um, and again, and, and an in-division trade, which of course is exactly what I talked about trying to avoid with Eichel, exactly what you did with Reinhardt. Um, I think Devin... Um, the goalie that we got, I think that's a great future piece, um, but you know it doesn't do anything for the team in the immediate. And a, a 22 uh, first round pick, fine, whatever. But I don't know that I would say the Sabers got fleeced, but I think they, yeah, I think they gave up too much. Um, even though it was just Reinhardt, like I think they could have gotten more for him, you know. Uh, and I think he's going to do great in Florida. Um, and he's probably going to score a bunch of goals against the Sabres, and it's going to be heartbreaking all over again. Um, but I, it was definitely, he was one of those players that, you know, I think we were sad to see him go. Well, I think for myself, I think the reason why I'm thinking that Buffalo got fleeced in this is because they could have gotten a lot more for Reinhardt. And while Devin Levy does seem like a pretty solid goaltender going forward, I think for me, only getting a first-round pick from Florida is not that great, given that that is going to be more of a later first round pick given the success that Pan the Florida Panthers are having right now and while my thoughts on the Reinhardt deal was that they got kind of fleeced the trade prior to this with the Philadelphia Flyers that's where I think Buffalo completely fleeced the Flyers Rasmus Rustalainen becoming a Philadelphia Flyer now prior to the Reinhardt trade as I said Buffalo actually made a pretty good one setting defenseman Rasmus Rustalainen to the Philadelphia Flyers for a 2021 first 2023 second and Robert Hack during the during the NHL draft. Russellina's tenure in Buffalo was one that started off pretty strong. In all honesty, recording four straight 40 excuse me 40 plus point seasons, then completely cratering into the earth, especially last season where both the analytical community and the eye test hockey fans like myself agreed that he was hot garbage. Now. Regarding the Rusta line and trade, I actually want to get your thoughts on this, given the fact that this basically what they should have got for Sam Reinhart. Yeah. So I think just just as I, I said that, you know, Sabres fans were sad to see Reinhardt go, mm -hmm. I think it's the exact opposite for the Rusta line and trade. Like everyone was so happy that he got traded and that the Sabres got that much for him because it's like have you have you watched him play hockey the last few years? Because <laughs> If you have, 
why would you give that much up for him? You know, and I think, I think that trade is one where it needed to happen, uh, regardless of what the Sabres got back. I think it was time, like, for the Sabres and Ristolainen to separate. Like, it's mutually beneficial. The Sabres needed to get rid of him. They have, you know, other defensive prospects and things that can that are coming up the ranks that can take that spot. Ristolainen has been hot garbage the last few years. He needs a change of pace. He needs a change of scenery. So it's mutually beneficial for both sides. Um, I don't know a ton about Robert Hagg, so I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I'm an expert on him. Um, the 13th overall pick, I think that was phenomenal. They picked Isaac Rosine. Um, I, he's, you know, playing overseas right now, um, but I think he looks like a great prospect, and I'm excited to see what he does in the next few years. And then to also get a second rounder in 2023 on top of that, like, why not, man? Given, you know, you can look, like I said, like you said, analytics or eye test, you can look at Ristolainen the last few seasons, you can see that they were absolutely horrible. So for the Flyers to want him or to take him and to give up all this in exchange was just like flabbergasting. <laughs> it was like, did that really just happen? Did we really just trade Ristolainen to the Flyers for all this, for all these pieces? Like, how did that happen? How did Kevin Adams pull that off? Is he like a magician? Because I don't know how that happened. But like I said, I think in the end, I think it's mutually beneficial. I think the Sabres needed to get rid of him, and he needed to get rid of the Sabres. Um, I also know this last year was was a, an especially tough one for him because he was one of the Sabres who did get COVID, um, and he spoke about it with, uh, I don't remember what the outlet was, but it was an international outlet. And he talked about how he, you know, had trouble like um, with his heart and things like that. There were nights when he went to sleep and he didn't know if he was going to wake up in the morning. Um, you know, and just like the physical, but also the emotional and mental toll that would take on someone. You know, I think people underestimated that and how that impacted his season. Even if he was physically able and physically, you know, clear to play, just having that mentality had to, you know, screw things up. Um, so I think he'll get a fresh start in Philly. And, you know, hopefully Flyers fans will adore him. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I think it's definitely good that he's out of the Sabres organization at this point. Well, and I know even talking about R- Ristolainen's early years in Buffalo where he was a pretty good player for the Sabres, do you feel that maybe a change of scenery can boost his confidence up back to where he was early in his career? Absolutely. I think he's he is one of those players where he was good and he has all this potential and he's still pretty young, you know. I mean, he's still on the younger side of things and he can definitely be a big blue line presence for the Flyers or, or for any team. Um, so I think the, the change of scenery will, will do him good. So with how brutal the 2021 season was for the Buffalo Sabres, the light at the end of the tunnel came when they landed the number one pick in the entry draft selecting Michigan's Owen Power. Despite the excitement of Power's selection, it was quickly dampered by the news that he elected to go back to Michigan for this upcoming season and not join the Sabres as an 18-year-old. What was your thoughts on Buffalo taking Power, and do you feel he's making the right choice going back to college? So, I do think he's making the right choice going back to college. Um, I was very excited when the Sabres selected him. I think he's, you know, this brilliant young talent. Um, but I also think that going back to college is a great idea for him and and for a lot of players, actually. Um, it's really interesting timing that we're doing this podcast today because uh, yesterday in the post game at the Prospect Challenge, 
uh, someone asked Seth Appert, who is the head coach of the Rochester Americans, um, the Sabres AHL club, they asked him about power and other players like power going back to college. And Appert is like the best person to ask that question about because he coached in college. He coached the uh, U.S. NTDP, so he has a lot of familiarity with young guys in that position. And like he said, he has talked to so many guys over the years, and he has never spoken to one guy who has regretted going back to college. But he has spoken to guys who have regretted, you know, stepping into the NHL too early. Uh, because you have to be ready for the NHL, you know, is what he said. And, and it's not just a physical thing, but it's a, an emotional thing. It's a maturity thing. And I, I couldn't agree more. Like, I think that there's a lot of pressure for especially a high pick like power to go to the NHL. But especially given the fact that last year was such a weird year, right? He didn't get to have that college experience like a normal college. And, and this year even is probably going to be a little different than normal, but it'll be better than last year things look like right now it's important to have that experience um you know i'm not going to say that he's going to spend all of the four years or five years or whatever but i don't think it hurts going back right just like just like seth Apper said he's never had a player tell him that he regretted going back for college he's had players tell him that i went too early i think you can absolutely go too early just physically like those years in college even if it's two years you know owen power is 18 he's going to be 19 in november that's still super young and the sabers have a lot of defensemen as it is so it, it it benefits him to go back to college and to go back to a powerhouse like michigan right like they could they are they're going to make a legitimate run for the ncaa tournament this year and he's going to get to be a part of that and that's incredible for him so maybe he does that this year maybe he you know plays the world juniors again for canada and goes to the NCAA tournament and maybe even wins. And then maybe next year he's ready to to make that push to the NHL. I think you can never compare two players like this, but you know, you think about like, what if Jack Eichel had gone back to college for another year? Because he could have, but he didn't. So I, I think it's always better for the player to be cautious and to go back to college because it's like like Abbott said, if you're not ready, you're not ready. And you have to be ready for the NHL um, in so many ways. Like once you make it to the NHL, that's your job. That's your life. Your your whole like experience surrounds being in the NHL. Let the 18-year-old kid be an 18-year-old kid. Let him go to college. Let him have the college hockey experience. Let him play in front of the fans at Michigan who are, from what I've heard, fantastic fans. Let him experience that for, you know, at least a year and then see where things go next year and you know the interesting thing is like he said that he told the sabers when they interviewed him before the draft that he was planning to go back for another year so the sabers fully knew that and took him anyway because of course if you have the opportunity to take a prospect like that you do you don't pass it up right even if you know okay we might have to wait a year two or maybe even three for him let's whatever but like, look at the position your team is in right now anyway. He's not He's not going to come and be the savior at 18 years old for a team that is at or near the bottom of the league. And and that's good because it's one of those situations where, like I said with Eichel, you don't want to put all this unnecessary pressure on this young kid who's already making these big decisions to go pro 
and forego the rest of his college experience and literally like alter his life to join your team. And so you just don't want to put more pressure on him. So I think it's, it's phenomenal decision. And I, you know, look forward to seeing him at Michigan this year and then in the Sabres organization in a few years. And especially for myself being an outsider, I do feel like Owen Power is making the right decision to go back to Michigan for another season because you look at the entry draft over the years, how many kids get drafted young, they come out at 18 when they're not ready, and these teams end up ruining them, right? And I feel that Buffalo is probably making the right decision by not trying to persuade him to be, hey, you know what, kid, you can make this team at 18. You don't have to go back to Michigan, but you're absolutely right. Like, he's going back and... Being Sens fans, you see a lot of the players that come out of North Dakota. None of these kids have said that, yeah, we regret going back to college and not joining the NHL at this young age. And it's funny talking about Michigan as a hockey school because Michigan is always known to be a football school, first and foremost. Yeah, I, I think going back is always the right decision. Like, if there's if there's ever a question of, should I go back or should I go to the NHL? I think going back is almost always the right choice, um, at least for a year, and then see where things are in a year. But especially this year, after just everything, how everything's been so crazy with COVID and everything, I think it's absolutely the right choice for him. So, and and like look at that Michigan team. That is a stacked Michigan team. So he's going to tear it up this year, and that whole team is going to be crazy talented. So. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make before we close out this segment? No, uh, this has been really informative, and it's nice to know that there's some hope around Buffalo, even though uh, this season's going to be pretty dark. I, I mean, it's hard because you look at this season and you look at who the Sabres acquired and who they sent off this season, and, and then, you know, obviously, like, the uncertainty with Eichel, and, um, you know, I mean, I don't expect any any issues with signing Dolly, but just considering that. And it's like, what what has changed from last season? Like what has made the Sabres get better over the off season? And I can't point to anything, uh, which, which absolutely stinks. Like obviously drafting Owen power is great, but again, that's a, that's a long-term thing, right? That's not a short term. So there's nothing that I can point to that happened over the off season. That's going to make me say, yeah, the Sabres are going to be better this year than they were last year. Like they lost their goalie. They lost Reinhardt. They lost, like they let Ristolainen and go like, there's nothing that I can say like makes me feel positive that they're going to move up to the ranks this year, except that now we're going to have another team in the NHL. So, you know, now they can give you the first team in the NHL history to finish 32nd. So Melissa, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule today to join us for this segment. Now, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media and where can our listeners also find die by the blade? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at underscore Melissa Burgess, and I will be writing regularly at Die by the Blade, uh, SB Nation's Buffalo Sabres blog, dieBytheBlade.com. Same handle on Twitter. Um, and yeah, if there's something Sabres going on, I'm probably out there putting my my two cents in. So I look forward to. Um, whenever we face the Senators, because that's always a fun game. So definitely looking forward to that. Now, the final thing we got to ask before we close out this segment, and we ask all of the people who are doing these segments with, because the NHL is going back to an 82-game season and they're going back to the original Atlantic 
division format. Now, given that it is a lock that the Sabres will most likely finish dead last in the Atlantic, I'm going to call an audible and ask your opinion, because there's a YouTuber out there called Melanie Martin. She's a diehard Sabres fan. She has a lot of YouTube videos. Do you think the 2021-22 Sabres season will be fantastic just because Melanie Martin is doing videos? Obviously. <laughs> I mean, have you watched her videos? They're incredible. And they're like, she's so talented. With, she can play instruments. She sings. She, you know, writes those lyrics. Like, I couldn't come up with that stuff. And it's an entertaining piece in a, a dark time in Buffalo. So it's always fun to, to check out her videos. It's true. Like, I'm a huge fan of her videos, even though I'm not a Sabres fan. And that was, for me, I really appreciate the fact when she does, like, the Sabres songs, whether it be tributes to Ario Speedwagon or Ariana Grande, was how close she comes to really replicating those songs, especially Ariana Grande for the Thank You Jeff song, where I'm like, yes. God damn, that's pretty good. That's pretty tight, man. And the uh, Darlene, uh, Jolene cover, I thought that was, <laughs> that was inspired. Oh, it was. Well, especially some of her Sabre reaction videos, like the Taylor Hall signing one where she just opens with, what? That got me right there. Yeah, that was like literally my reaction when I saw it. I was like, no, no, there's no way. Like, I literally triple checked because it was a tweet that I saw and I triple checked that this is a verified account. This is a legitimate account. Yes. Am I sure? Wait, am I I really sure? Is Is that legit? Like, is this really happening? That can't be. At at what point do you think the Sabres will get here to sing the national anthem at a game, though? I would love that, but I don't know. We'll see. Melissa, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Representing the Detroit Red Wings of the Atlantic Division is a staff writer for SB Nation's Winging It in Motown, as well as the editor for Last Word on Puck. Please welcome to the show the newest resident of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jake Rivard. Jake, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Doing well, thank you. Happy to be here. This is actually my podcast debut, believe it or not. Really? I can't believe that, man. That's awesome. The start of many, one can hope. <laughs> well, you know, given that this is your first time on a podcast, hopefully this will be the start of something new for you, man. Same here. Bingo bongo, right? Absolutely. So, Jake, before we get into any of the Red Wing stuff that we got to talk about this evening, one thing I love doing with this podcast, anytime we get somebody new on the show that we've never worked with before, is we like to do a little bit of getting to know them. And one of the things I always love hearing about whether it's doing this podcast or meeting people in person, is how they became a fan of a certain team. Now, given that you are originally from Michigan, it seems like an obvious answer, but I'll ask regardless, how did you become a fan of the Detroit Red Wings? Well, I will say, you know, it's legally obligated in Michigan to be a Red Wings fan. And if you're not, well, could be in some trouble. Um, but my real fandom began, actually, funny enough, when I was about two years old, um, I was visiting my uncle with my dad, and we were watching a Wings game, and they were playing the Avs. 
And if you know anything about the game in 1997, um, <laughs> there's a bit of a disagreement with a couple players. Um, well, you know, one or two fights happened to break out, and uh, my dad had to keep switching channels from the fight night to Barney the Dinosaur until eventually he said, no more dinosaur, and we watched the rest of the fight. I mean, since then, you know, I watched the whole thing <coughs> go down, and I was just hooked. Uh, yeah. Caught my first game, watching them play the Predators, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, and I've just been around ever since. That's awesome. And you know, it's funny that you bring up the fight night of the Joe, because I know for a lot of people, when talking about the Red Wings of the late 1990s, that will always be the single moment that broke the Red Wings through to their four Stanley Cups that they have today in recent history. I would absolutely agree. Yeah, it was it was the uh, Goliath they needed to slay. That Goliath, of course, being Claude Lemieux. <laughs> and man, is have I never seen a player that probably deserved to get his face punched in as much as Claude? <laughs> Apparently, he's a much nicer guy nowadays, and he did apologize to Chris Draper. But mm-hmm. yeah, he and McCarty, I think, are they're not really friends, but uh, you know, they've made up and mm. they're pretty amicable with one another. Yeah. Well, I remember. I don't know, 12 years ago, they appeared on, there was a show up here in Canada called Off the Record, and they both appeared on it, and this was like years after the fact, and it, even Michael Landsberg, the host, was just like, nobody would have ever thought that you two would be sitting together, eh? He's like, nope, not at all. Honestly, a dream would have them both on a podcast. I think they'd be a hilarious, they'd be going back and forth like crazy, you know, I think they both bring good energy to the table in that regard. Yeah, I think. I think Darren McCarty does a radio show or a podcast. I'm surprised yeah. he doesn't have Claude yep. on. He's uh he's been on the Wood on Woodward quite a bit. He's on he guest appears on quite a few podcasts as well. As we said off the opening, you are a staff writer and editor for Winging It Motown and Last Word on Puck, respectively. Over the years, we've worked with a number of people who've wor- either wrote for SB Nation hockey blogs, and we even had the host of Last Words Sense podcast, Alex Metzger, as a co-host. In regards to both Winging It and Lost Word, how did you become a fan with those sites? I'm a big fan of Alex Metzger. And if you mentioned him, I actually messaged him right before this and told him I was coming on the episode. He spoke very highly of you guys. Um, Excellent. I will start with my work with uh, Last Word on Puck. So I'm a writer in my day job. And, um, you know, while the stuff I write is mostly ad-related copy, I wanted to take my skills to the next level and go towards something that I'm uh, passionate about. So after a short stint with another hockey publication, I reached out to the guys at Lastford on Sports, hoping for a little more opportunity. As you guys probably know, this is a, you know, you get out what you put in type business. So after a lot of hard work and dedication, I managed to work my way up from just to the role of an editor. Um, as for Wayne at Motown, uh, I like to call it my writer origin story here. Um, this one was a bit of confidence and luck. I felt, you know, kind of lost, a um, little writerless in the middle of, the overwhelming world of hockey journalists, and I needed, you know, a runner. Um, on a whim, I reached out to Greg Wyshynski at ESPN. He was offering writer advice, and I figured I would, you know, throw my hat in there, see if he had any pointers he'd give me. Um, from there, he suggested I make uh, make myself stand out, you know, reach out to a couple Wings publications and see if there's anything that would take me. One thing led to another, and I found myself on a call with the managing editor of Wim and one of the editors and quickly placed on that roster. Now, one final question we ought to ask before we get into the wing stuff. And I said right off the top, you are newly from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Do you mind sharing with our listeners how you went from being Michigan to Pittsburgh? Yeah, of course. Um, well, it's, it's a bit of a long story, so I'll try to make it quite uh, brief. 
So I visited Pittsburgh a couple of years ago and just immediately fell in love with the city. While I'm not a big fan of Crosby Country myself, usually, I am a big fan of the city and everything it has to offer. And after living in Michigan my whole life, I wanted to see what it like, what life would be like outside of the state. Um, so it brought me here, and I've been here about a week and a half now. Uh, my cat isn't really crazy about it, but he's going to have to get used to it. Now, being from Michigan, does this mean you're going to have to be either a Steelers or a Pirates fan now? Absolutely not. I'm a Detroit <laughs> born and bred. So let's get and talk about the Detroit Red Wings. Whether they like it or not. Fair enough, right? I mean, I mean, what do you expect, right? I mean, the Pirates, I would not cheer for them to save my life. And the Steelers, I mean, God, I'm a Seattle fan. Like, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to cheer for them. God. Ugh. Could you, like, ironically cheer for the Pirates? Or is that just, like, depressing? I actually, I'm not one of the, I mean, I've been a Tigers fan the past couple of years. Uh, so I know the definite depression. And I mean, being a Lions fan, uh, pain is the name of the game. Yep. I actually reached out to one of the beat writers. <laughs> he was like, don't worry, it'll be okay. And I said, are you sure? Yeah. Sure that one? <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, when you cheer for an NFL team that not only wasted the talents of Barry Sanders and Megatron, uh, I don't know. I, I, I would have just given up at that point. Wait. There's a player nicknamed Megatron, and he had his talent wasted. Kelvin Johnson, man. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Don't worry. I know. I know pain. <laughs> so let's talk about the Detroit Red Wings. So the 2021 season was another tough season for Detroit in their rebuild. The team overall struggled throughout, as expected for a rebuilding team. Their top guys had down Caesar down seasons. Tyler Bertuzzi was injured for most of it, and overall. The team was just non-existent offensively, finishing 30th of 31. The main upside of such a season is that the Wings finished with another high draft pick, selecting Simon Edvidson with a 6th overall draft pick. Coming into this coming season, expectations are once again going to be low, but we'll see some new phases on the roster, most notably Alex Nijugla. Uh Thank you. I was just like, I totally blanked on how to even pronounce his last name. Thank you. In regards to last season, what was your thoughts on the team and how they played, and what kind of expectations should fans have this coming season? Well, 2019-20 was kind of a rock bottom. (laughs) 17 wins in a very, very tough and forgettable season uh, left a lot of pain in people's hearts. Honestly, anything above that would be considered a win in my eyes, and the fact that they pulled together 19 wins in 56 games was just that. There were a couple of highs, you know. We got to see Zadine have his first full real season. Michael Rasmussen grew and grew on his own a bit. And a couple of surprises showed up in Troy Stetcher and a shocking renaissance season out of Mark Stahl. There were quite a few lows. Obviously, Bertuzzi's injury played a huge part. And the very questionable hit from Jen against Larkin that ended his season definitely left a sore spot in my heart and the heart of quite, hearts of quite a few other people. Um, I think Iserman did a terrific job managing trades managing the draft, and I'm hoping that Edmondson can pan out as I personally wanted them to take William Eklund. So fingers crossed that that works out, as well as Sebastian Kosa, where I was hoping Wallstead would have gone. Then again, this guy knows better than I do, uh, which is why he is the boss and I am the writer man. So given that you were just talking about Stevie Y, I figure that this is a perfect segue to talk about him as general manager. As said earlier, this coming season is going to be another rebuilding year for the Red Wings, but it will also be GM Steve Eisman's third season as the Wings GM. 
Eiserman's tenure as a Red Wing player, I mean, that speaks for itself. I mean, regardless of what side of the coin, you were either Red Wings, Avs, whatever fan. But when he took over Detroit, he was tasked with cleaning up the mess left by Ken Holland of the bad contracts and just an overall lack of quality prospects in the system. While it is still too early to really judge his tenure so far as a Red Wing GM, I would love to get your thoughts on how you thought he's been doing as GM in Detroit. You know, one thing I admire about Iserman is that he tries to swing for the fences whenever he can. Whether he gets successes with Robbie Fabry or complete whiffs like Brendan Perlini, he's not the type to sit idly by and just let things pass. When an opportunity presents itself, he'll seize the day, getting players like Verona, Nedeljkovic, and heck, even Mark Stahl with those draft picks. Um, his drafting and trades have been solid, and there, but there is a lot that goes into a rebuild. In order to create a contender, you kind of have to hit a home run on every single department, from front office moves to player development. With that said, we have yet to see a play in an NHL game. Obviously, this will change next season, but we're slowly approaching the prove-it stage. And I'm hoping that Eisenman lives up to the... Given his record in Tampa Bay, I would assume he will. Uh, looking at uh, some of the offseason moves, uh, the one thing that did happen was uh, the buyout of Justin Applicator. With that, the last of the players that brought a Stanley Cup into Detroit are now gone. How does it feel that the era is fully over? It is bittersweet, I will say. Um, losing him, Fildula, and Helm was kind of a much-needed move, in my opinion. But um, it needed to happen one day, one way or another. Now we have a brand new era, and there's a chance to completely change the culture as we know it. For better or worse, that remains to be seen, but given the fact that Eiserman is manning the helm, it appears to be leaning more towards the former. Mm. Well, I mean, especially when you see how he did in Tampa Bay when he took over the Lightning. I mean, the Lightning was just a god-awful franchise. And then all these years later, you saw like the... Tampa Bay Lightning are now back-to-back Stanley Cup champions because of the draft picks, the trades that he made before he left. Of course, don't sell Brisbois short. Of course. I would say that Eiserman probably did the majority of the groundwork, but Brisbois added the little foundational pieces needed to uh, complete the puzzle. Mm-hmm. With guys like Coleman and uh, Goudreau and any of those other pieces needed for convention. Fair enough. Over the past several yeah, years... Yeah, like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tim. It's going to, I think the, the Detroit Red Wings are such an interesting team because there's a lot of pieces you wouldn't expect that kind of fell into place, like Sam, Gon, Sam Gagne or Jacob Verona just kind of coming out. And, and I don't want to say nowhere because there's clearly a foundation built here. Yeah, they've definitely surprised me in more ways than one. Gagne is actually somebody who shocked me the most. Um, if you look at his advanced analytics, he actually put up better defensive numbers than a lot of the league's premier players, like Nathan McKinnon, which is a total shock. Obviously, given the fact that he's playing you know, fourth-line minutes, adjusts to that, but um, the fact that the guy in his early 30s can continue at that level is, is very exciting. So over the past several seasons, one of the main things Detroit has really lacked on the ice has been a true number one goaltender. While Jonathan Bernier and Thomas Grice put up decent numbers last year for the Detroit, Steve Eisman knew he needed a guy who can become the number one starter moving forward, which led to him making the trade with Carolina to acquire Calder nominee Alex Nedeljkovic. He is a guy who really made an impact for Carolina last season, going 15-5-3 with a goals against of 1.9 and a save percentage of 9-3-2, backing up James Reimer. 
Overall, what was your thoughts on the trade itself and what kind of expectations should we have on him this coming season? So this is what I completely didn't expect, but I can't say I didn't appreciate it. In 48 hours, Eisman is able to transform one of their biggest question marks on the roster into an emphatic exclamation point. Um, going from the Dedelkovich trade to drafting Sebastian Kosa in 48 hours uh, was a huge, huge win for the organization. Having said that, I might not be as high on Nadelkovich as a few other of the Red Wings writers. Um, while I think he showed a lot of promise this last season, he was also backstopped with a little help from Dougie Hamilton, Jacob Slavin, and the immense defensive depth of Carolina. He's not going to be getting that in Detroit, and I believe that will lead to a bit of regression on his part. I don't see him leading the league in save percentage like he did last season, but I don't necessarily see him struggling to fill the role of a, of a start goaltender. I predict that he will be splitting the majority of the starts with Grice to start the season, and if he continues to expectations, he'll man the reins of a full-time role. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect way to do it with him because he is he is a younger goalie. I think he's a lot... He's actually a lot older than I actually kind of expected. I thought he was going to be in his early 20s, but he's in his mid-20s. But I think if he splits time with Thomas Grice, honestly, I think that would be the best way to ease him into that starting role in Detroit. Whether Thomas Grice is still with the Red Wings moving forward, that really means to be seen. But honestly, I totally agree. I think this was a great move for Detroit because Stevie Y answered one of his biggest issues. That is in goal. It's actually really interesting, too. Um, given the amount of starts that Nadelkovich did, he's actually eligible for the Calder again this year. So you might be able to see a two-time Calder nominee out of Nadelkovich, a rarity in today's NHL. Well, it almost sounds counter not counterintuitive, but uh, a bit wrong to be a two-times Calder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, in fairness, if Karel Kaprizov can win it. Nadelkovich. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. One of the nice things about the Nadelkovich contract is, given that there is quite a few question marks, given that he hasn't played a lot of games, it's a two-year contract for $3 million. If it doesn't work out, nothing big. Cap space is one of the biggest assets the Red Wings have right now, and honestly, that allowed them to overpay for players like Pia Suter, um, giving them a little more depth and allowing them to nab players from otherwise coveted rosters. So going back to what I was saying earlier regarding the 2021 season, their top guys all had down seasons, most notably Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi, who was dealing with injuries. While, like I said, Bertuzzi did deal with injuries last season, Larkin really struggled, scoring nine goals with 14 assists for 23 points in 44 games. With the 21-22 season being a full 82 games, and with both guys healthy, do you think Detroit will see both players have bounce-back seasons in 21-22? I would like to think so, yeah. Um, it's important to note that Larkin actually shot at a very low shooting percentage last season, almost a 6%. I mean, for the most part, the majority of the Red Wings struggled, but Larkin especially, as the team's top offensive producer, struggled immensely. I think he's going to improve now that he has Bertuzzi back, and he's got a full season with Verona. Obviously, losing a friend like Manta probably hurt him in terms of his scoring ability, um, but... It, it, it is important also to note that he ended his season early, again, uh, after Jamie Ben cross-checked him in the back of the neck. Um, I expect Larkin to hit somewhere close to the 65 to 70 point range, um, barring any injuries. So a little closer to his 2019-20 production when he hit 30 goals alongside Andreas Antonisiu. 
Bertuzzi, on the other hand, was a very noticeable absence as the season went on. He only played, I want to say, about eight or nine games, which for a team that needed offense and needed players like Bertuzzi, it was very unfortunate to see him go down with that injury. He gives 110% every night, and the, uh, the impact that he has on the ice is noticeable night in and night out. Barring injuries, I expect him to be around 55 points. Um, he was getting close to those numbers in 2019 and 20 and 2020-21. So here's to hoping that we see that improvement this time around. Well, especially with how weak Detroit really is offensively. Like, if Larkin and Pertuzzi can have bounce-back seasons, I think that will be fantastic for Detroit, definitely because they are the top guys. But another guy I want to talk about, and for us Ottawa fans, the fourth overall selection of Brady Tkachuk in the 2018 draft is one that, while many fans at the time don't look back, looked at, it was just like, I can't believe we took this kid. But I think in, in fairness, looking back on it, it was a great pickup. I think the only reason it was seen that way is because fans really wanted Philip Sedina at number four. Since he was taken sixth overall by Detroit, Sedina has yet to really break out at the NHL level despite his first full season last year. In regards to Philip Sedina, how, what do you think he needs to do to finally have a breakout in 21-22? So Sedina is kind of similar to Larkin in that he had ridiculously low shooting percentages. Um, you know, he was, he was sh- shooting at an absurdly low pace but he was good at just about everything else. Um, he had solid defense. He was able to work in both zones. He was able to generate plenty of scoring chances, but not necessarily any scoring on his own. He's going to be, this next year, on a line with Robbie Fabry and Pia Suter, who are two guys that will also look to have big breakouts. Fabry's about to be on the hunt for his next contract, and he's going to need to put in his all if he's, ordered, if he's going to lock down a long-term deal. Suter, on the other hand, only has only played one season in the NHL. Um, he played at the Blackhawks for a bit, and now he's looking for his next big breakout. Um, he's looking to prove likely that this season wasn't just a one-off. Uh, in terms of points, I think a realistic expectation would be about 45 for Zadina. It's just a hair over half a point per game. Can he achieve higher? I would say so. Will he? It depends on how he handles the workload of a full season. As said earlier, with the Red Wings struggling mightily off on the offensive side, of it, one guy who really came as a bit of a surprise was the acquisition of forward Jacob Verana. Now, prior to his arrival in Motown, Verana was having a pretty solid season with Washington with 11 goals, 14 assists for 25 points in 39 games, then going exactly a point per game in Detroit with 8 goals, 3 assists for 11 points in 11 games. Coming into this coming season, Verona will most likely start the season with Bertuzzi and Larkin as the number one right winger. What was what has been your thoughts on Verona's tenure so far as a Red Wing, and what kind of expectations should fans have for him this season? So, given the fact that it was a short sample size, I'll try my best to tamper my expectations. Um, I think a lot of people are very excited, and rightfully so, um, given the fact that Verona has shown more consistency than his trade mate, uh, Anthony Mantha. Having said that, my expectations are very similar to what I had with him. Uh, I'm expecting a 30-goal, 60-65-point pace, though I believe he probably has a little more in his tank than that. He gives me the impression of a guy who could hit over 70 points on a regular basis, sees the net and sees now if he gives his all every night. What he's doing right now is working, but... The way he blew down the doors in Detroit shows that he's got an extra gear to his game. It'll just be a manner of, one, managing expectations, and two, uh, managing motivation. Is there any question or worries about uh, Jacob Verana off the ice? Uh, there was 
a sense that something was bubbling under the under the covers in Washington, and that's the reason why he's out. Well, my personal theory with that is that he wasn't receiving the opportunities that he really needed to thrive. I mean, given the fact that you're behind Alex Ovechkin on his depth chart, doesn't really inspire plenty moves for upward mobility. I think that this move has helped out. It's a win for both sides. I think Mantha was get, needed a new change of scenery, and I think that Verona needed one as well. How they succeed relative to their contracts will remain to be seen, but as of right now, this trade appears to be a very one-sided affair. So... Sounds good. Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on this segment? No, no. Jake, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us for this segment today. Now, before we let you go, first of all, where can our listeners find you on social media? And where can they find your work on Winging It in Motown? Of course, yeah. Um, If you guys are looking to get a little bit of Red Wings content, feel free to give me a follow at RivardNHL. That is R-I-V-A-R-D-N-H-L on Twitter. Find a lot of my work on wingingitinmotown.com or lastwordonsports.com slash hockey. Thank you guys so much for uh, taking time out of your day for this. No worries. I'm very excited to see how the season unfolds. It's going to be a good one. And w- the final question we got to ask, given that, again, this is the first full 82-game season, the NHL is going back to the original formats for the division, I got to get your thoughts. Where do you see the Detroit Red Wings finishing the 2021-2022 season? in the Atlantic. I see them being second to last place, if we're being completely realistic here. We are in one of the toughest divisions in the NHL, given the fact that you have Tampa, Florida, Toronto, and Boston. You're going to have improvements from teams like like Ottawa, which are making great steps in the right direction, but you're going to have the continued misery of uh, the Buffalo Sabres. I don't think Montreal is going to quite be where they were, given the fact that Shea Weber's injured and Carey Price could potentially be injured but I still foresee them being a better team than Detroit and Buffalo. Jake, thank you so much for doing this. I think there's a chance that Detroit will be worse than Buffalo this season. I don't entirely see that being likely. Um, I think it all depends on Eichel and a couple other factors out of Buffalo. Um, If you see Jack Eichel return and actually remain with the Sabres, and you see somebody like Rasmus Dahlin take the next big step, you could certainly make a case, but given the acquisitions of Nadelkovich and Nick Letty, um, Jacob Verano's first full season, and hopefully the emergence of a player, an exciting player like Moritz Seider, um, I see Detroit finishing just a hair out of the bottom five in the league, uh, somewhere close to 26th or 27th place. That's pretty fair. Actually, I honestly, if someone was to ask me, I would have had Detroit being above Buffalo, but not above anybody else. Yeah, definitely. Buffalo is going to be uh, battling Arizona for the basement this next season. Yeah, and Anaheim might be right there with them. they got to get rid of John Gibbs at some point, you know? Like, this now is the time to get the maximum return. And you're going to have plenty of hungry teams looking for that big starter. Absolutely, man. Jake, once again, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Of course. Thank you, guys. You both have a wonderful day. Look forward to hearing the podcast. Cheers, buddy.
Representing the Boston Bruins of the Atlantic Division is the founder and CEO of Black and Gold Productions and the host of the Black and Gold Podcast. Please welcome to the show from Amesbury, Massachusetts, Mark Allred. Mark, how's it going, man? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Good to talk some uh, Atlantic Division hockey before the season gets underway here. And and part of uh, I'm proud of uh, being um, on a list of uh, exclusive guests that you've had on recently. And those are fantastic programs. So I'm kind of uh, setting the bar here with a little pressure, huh? No, oh, I know, right? It's going to be good, man. And I mean, like I as a little kid, I grew up a Bruins fan. So for me, it's just kind of like, oh, this is nothing. Like, obviously, my dad was a big Bruin fan growing up, so... Kind of weird now that I cheer for the a team in their division, but you know, it is what it is. So Mark, one of the nice things that, about this podcast is that I like to do a little bit of getting to know them. And one of the things that I always love knowing about, whether it's through the show or meeting people in public, is how they became a fan of the team. Now this may seem like a bit of a redundant question given that you are from Massachusetts, but how did you become a fan of the Boston Bruins? Uh, it goes back to when I was probably about two or three years old. I don't remember it, obviously, but family members do remember me sitting next to my dad when he was watching TV 38 on the old um, antenna, you know, the tinfoil antennas back in the day. But that basically got started there, and it just became like a family tradition that when I started getting older and going to school, you know, you had a 7 o'clock freaking bedtime back then. And uh, that's, you know, 7.30, 7 o'clock was, uh, was Bruins times. So it was uh, once I heard the, uh, the startup of the, uh, the game and the music, intro music, it was uh, out of bed and I'd hustle my ass down there and try to plead with my mom to just sit there and watch the game with my dad. So basically he got me into it. He's a former goaltender, not, not anything pro or anything or college or anything, more or less like a beer leaguer back in the day. And uh, he just really got me into the sport and the position of goal, which I retired probably like seven, eight years ago from. Including getting to know the guests a little bit more, one of the things I also love doing with this podcast is talking to said guest about how their podcast or their blog started up that they write for. As said off the tough, you founded Black and Gold Productions, which incorporates both a Bruins blog as well as the Bruins podcast, Black and Gold Podcast. How and when did you decide to come up with the Black and Gold Productions? Well, it started off with the, the website first, blackandgoldhockey.com, and it was just me and doing my, my Providence Bruins and, and prospect uh, writings. Not very good back in the day, but, you know, as you, as you, you know, you have something, you, you, uh, you continue learning. It never stops. And, um, and, and from that, I grew to having like four or five members to now we have almost 30. We have a podcast network on the website and we have 30 writers on the website. So we cover all levels of the uh, Boston Bruins organization from the NHL down to the prospects worldwide. And it's been a lot of fun, but we started in 2016. Uh, and that's pretty much when podcasting, especially in hockey, was really becoming popular. There was a lot, and it's even become more popular these days with shows like yours. And it was just something I really wanted to do because I, I might not know a ton about the sport in, in my own team, you know, with fans and so on, we make mistakes and everything, but it's still fun to sit um, with somebody that is passionate about the sport and the team itself uh, and, and, and just hash it out, talk about it. The band is fun, you know, and, uh, and we just happened to record it and put it on YouTube and, and, uh, and it's been a lot of fun and I, I really enjoyed that, but I, uh, Kudos to the guys at B&G because they really drive the train there. So I'm just sitting back, just orchestrating a little bit here and there. But those are the guys that really do the work. 
Now, given that you have been covering the Bruins for a number of years, has any player or anybody from the Bruins heard your podcast and reached out to you guys? Not reached out, but I reached out to Jeremy Swayman. We were playing at UMaine, and I uh, got to talk to him while he was up there, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, you really got a lot to get to know him, sitting down and, and learning the character and, and where he's from in Alaska, and, and I thought it was a great listen and uh, one that uh, it will be my favorite, but uh, not too many uh, other players reached out and or heard our podcast. Now, before we dive into what we're going to talk about today in regards to the Bruins' 2021 season, as well as some of the storylines for 21-22, a lot of people may not realize that this show and yourself actually go back a little bit. And I remember a couple of years ago, you used to tweet out your weekly podcast listening lineup, and we were actually featured on the, in the lineup. I think we were mentioned in like midweek or whatever it was. And when we did our 100th episode, we gave you a shout out. No, I know I've never asked you this, Mark, but how did you end up discovering Third Line Plug? I think I just, because I'm a podcast junkie, I have a regular 40-hour job and, and B&G Productions is a, is a second a second job. It's just a, it's just another 40 hours on top of what I already do. But um, with all that time, I just listen to podcasts. Um, I, like I said, I'm a podcast junkie. So I'll search out through every team to find out the best programs. And I just came upon yours, gave it about a three-minute sample, and I was impressed. It's one of the – I mean, I, I pretty much have a show for every team. And um, I think there's another Senators podcast that I listen to. I think it's Sends Nation. Okay. Uh, but those you, you and uh, that podcast are pretty much the only uh, Sends Net uh, podcast that i listen to so but i pretty much i like to cover the whole league because you're getting uh, a bunch of information which is from the fans and it's from the heart about how these you know players are playing in a certain area and so on and that's the type of stuff that you i like to listen to because you're getting it deep down inside and not from a puppet yeah and even for ourselves like when we started the podcast in 2017 it's amazing how bare the sense podcast landscape was where really it was just us Cosper Pointcast, and there was another show, Sans Call-Ups. And in the last, I would say, four years, I mean, all these shows popped up. Internal Budget popped up. There was a Centennial Podcast. There's so many podcasts that just popped up. And even though like we were one of the originals, it is still kind of cool that people have reached out to us and be like, hey, listen, we love your show. We love what you're doing. And I'm I'm more of the belief of like, what, really? I really, of all the podcasts that's out there, you're we're the ones that you guys enjoy? Okay, cool. Yeah, you're definitely your biggest critics. <laughs> oh, oh, believe me. Even when I'm editing these episodes, I'm just like, oh god, okay. Let's see. Let's listen how bad we were this week. But honestly, it hasn't been too bad. But I will say, it's so cringe going back to listen to the early, early episodes. It's just like, ugh. Yeah, because you, back then you you don't really you're in a rush to get your program out, so you're really not overly concerned with how it sounds. Those are the things that you work on as you as you climb the ladder you know your program gets better all the quality gets better and obviously your uh your listenership is going to get better with all those all those things that you work on so i mean i've been doing it since 2016 and i kind of think that we have a, a pretty good grasp on how it all works and so on but you know just keep it up and because uh, i enjoy the program i really do and i especially like i said before these um atlantic division breakdowns have been a lot of fun to uh, to listen to yeah, it's been a lot of fun for us to do them too. I think for me, and it's funny because when we did it last year, I remember saying to Tim, and I've, I've said it on the show too, I've just like, we will let's not do this again. Like this was so much work. And I don't think people realize how much work goes into these episodes. 
But I think it was like a month, couple of months later, I'm just like, you know, that was kind of fun. Let's do it again. So this is why we're doing it. So let's talk about the 2021 season for the Bruins because the Boston Bruins in 2021 had yet another successful season. Their top line of Marchand, Bergeron, and Pasternak continued to be one of the best lines in hockey. Tuka Rask continued to be a number one goaltender with a 15-5-2 record. And the trade deadline acquisition of Taylor Hall turned into an absolute slam dunk for the Bruins. Now, despite their five-game series win over Washington in round one, their overall lack of bottom six scoring and Tuka Rask completely falling apart in games five and six in the second round saw the Bruins season end. Now, coming into this season, the Bruins are once again projected to be a playoff team as a lot of the faces from last season are returning, as well as some new faces, most notably goaltender Linus Omark. What were your thoughts on the Bruins in 2021? And as a fan, what kind of expectations do you have for them as we enter 21-22? I actually really enjoyed that uh, Taylor Hall move. It was uh, kind of a steal, if you ask me, a second-round pick. And Anders Bjork moving the other way to get the uh, basic rights. Uh, to Taylor Hall for a little bit of time and some playoffs and, and basically, you know, uh, have the offseason to work out a deal, which they did, which is which is very good, a four-year deal. I think it's very fair. But I need to see more of Taylor, especially in the second round when we were playing the New York Islanders. I think that um, the production line of Bergeron, Marchand, and, and Pasternak was, was good, but it was, you know, it had disappearing access at times. But I thought that the New York Islanders really shut down that second line in that series. I think the Krejci, um, uh, Smith, and, and Hall line were just completely just stifled. And that really hurt us, And uh, especially the way that uh, New York was uh, getting into our defense and getting uh, in close opportunities. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it sucks for Tuka to, to go through stuff like that and so on because it doesn't put any better name on, on his um, – on his uh, resume in Boston because he's just a, he's a polarizing player and most fans hate him. So my expectations going into this, this year uh, are good. I mean, uh, they weren't very explosive free agent moves in my opinion, but they were more, they addressed certain needs. And I think that the reconstruction of the bottom six, getting rid of Sean Corrales, he goes to Columbus, getting in a, a, a Thomas Nosha, getting in Eric Hala, I think that those are the types of moves that were needed for to move forward. And I think that even though a lot of Bruins fans look at the lineup and see more lateral movements than anything else, and there weren't any big explosive free agent signings. I mean, with the cap space that we have and so on, it was just it was a matter of time and, and uh, in need at that moment to um, to address those um, those positions. But I feel that this is going to be a team that's going to shock a lot of Bruins fans, and let alone hockey fans out there that also believe that the Bruins didn't make that much of a big impact in free agency. Now, I know you said that this season's going to shock a lot of fans. In, in what way do you mean, Mark? Do you mean in a positive way or a negative way? Well, more or less, it's a, it's a positive thing. Uh, I just think that, like I said before, I just think that there's expectations in Boston. We're a winning city. You know, there's a tradition of winning around here, and all teams are supposed to abide by that. But, you know, I think this lineup is more or less going to be the positive shock. I think that they, a lot of players, they, 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 this is not our year, even when they just signed free agents over the offseason they're already calling it a year and so on they're not going to make it out of the second round I kind of believe they will make it out of the second round I'm not sure about Stanley Cup success but I mean that remains to be seen I mean if, if it's a really good year and that you get a lot of good chemistry with these new guys coming in especially Taylor Hall with a full offseason and coming right into training camp 
and give him a full year. I think he's going to be a really productive goal scorer. And people are going to feed off of that. The loss of Krejci is definitely going to suck on that two-line C because we don't have the replacement right now. It's a toss-up between Charlie Coyle and can a rookie come in there like Jack Sabika. It's There's a lot of variables that are going on right now with this Boston Bruins team, especially at that position. I think Charlie Coyle is going to do a good job. I hope, Hopefully he does a good job. But um, he's been sh- showing signs of inconsistent struggles, it, even when he was back with Minnesota. So getting up to that 2C, which now he's being basically paid for. He was getting paid $5 million a year to be a third-line uh, center, but now he's getting that second C kind of money. So I think he's really going to step up. And I really like the way he, he uh, said in a press conference over the offseason when Bruce Cassidy said, yeah, I mean, we're going to give every opportunity uh, to Charlie Coyle to fill in that, that two C. But when he came and talked, he's like, I, I haven't gotten anything yet. I have to earn it. So you've got to like the, you know, the charisma that he's already bringing into the year when he when he's given that opportunity. Now, among the many familiar faces returning to the Bruins for the 21-22 season, fan favorite and team captain Patrice Bergeron will also be returning for his 18th NHL season. And that actually kind of surprised me because you tend to forget that Patrice Bergeron has been in the NHL that long. And Bergeron has been consistently one of the best two-way centers during his career in Boston and has been a key contributor to their success throughout. Now, entering the season, he will be in his final year of his contract, and the Bruins would be, in my personal opinion, out of his mind to not have him retire in Boston. In regards to Patrice's status as a UFA, do you think we'll see him return for his final contract in Boston? I like the way that he addressed uh, that indeed question right there um, uh, to reporters recently. Um, And he wants to do uh, a year-by-year contract. So he wants to uh, not have contract negotiations throughout the season because I think as an aging veteran and still a very productive two-way player, two-way center, um, who could probably still, you know, rival anybody for the Selkie for for uh, a league leading um, fifth or sixth. I'm not sure. I'll probably get killed for that one. But anyway, um, yeah, year by year, don't talk to me during the season. Let me see how I feel afterwards because uh, later on in, in these um, in this veteran's freaking, you know, um, uh, career, he's he's been taking a beating, but he's he's a warrior and he struggles right through it. I mean, a punctured lung broken rib, blah, 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 you know, it's just, it, this guy's just, he's the perfect player in my opinion, and it's going to be a shame to see him go, uh, that's the one that, you, you know, I basically watched his whole career since he came into the Boston Bruins organization in the lockout, went down to Providence, saw him down there, just saw him just blossom into an unbelievable player and, and a captain today, but um, I, yeah, I, I like the way that him and the organization are going to work it out and so on. But he understands that there's, there's a pipeline that, that, you know, the Boston Bruins have bred centers. Are they good centers? No, but they're, they're you know, they're in position and so on to to uh, possibly, you know, uh, get uh, some positions, some, some ice available to them to show what they can do. And I know that he's a type of player that understands that. But I also know that he's a player that still wants to get a mission done you know, with the core that they have right now. Minus Krejci, it's going to be a lot harder and so on. But I think that deep down inside, you know, every every player on this Boston Bruins team goes into the, you know, the start of the regular season with high expectations. And let's see where we go, you know, get some chemistry and, and uh, let it roll. Well, even for myself being an outsider, I mean, Bergeron was always one of my favorite players. And even watching him in that 23 pl- 20, uh, sorry, 2013 playoffs, as you mentioned, when he had the punctured lung and he had all those injuries. I remember watching that thinking like, 
most people, if not everybody, would have gone down. And here's Bergeron, who basically, with a punctured lung, that's life-threatening right there. And the fact he fought through that, and they he took Boston to the finals. I mean, for me personally, I think he will always be my favorite just because of the OT Game 7 against just Toronto. That's a... That's an obvious, oh, great, yeah. that's a thumbs up for me right there. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, that was great. That was a great moment. Oh, God. Well, anytime you could watch Toronto just fall flat on your face, their face, it's just, oh, it's so good. It's so hey, good. Did you, hey, did you hear the Toronto Maple Leafs all got the Moderna shot? No. Yeah, they, yeah because it only lasts one round. <laughs> well done. Well done. I heard that on uh, I heard that on another podcast. I had to freaking use. I'm not taking full credit for that one, but <laughs> oh, that was so good. That was so good. <laughs> Anytime uh, we can share some Leafs hate, man, I'm I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's funny is like even on this podcast, like we generally don't slag the Leafs as much as a lot of people would think, right, but right. you know that's just the way it is. No, also returning to the Bruins for another season is star defenseman Charlie McAvoy, fresh off of leading the Bruins in defenseman scoring for the first time. McAvoy's tenure as a Bruin has seen him rise from being a talented defenseman to being the defenseman in a matter of a couple of seasons following the departures of Tory Krug and Daniel Chara. Entering this season, McAvoy will be an RFA once again at season's end and will be looking for a big-time raise. However, the Bruins are currently tight under the cap and with the big contracts given to their core, it'll be interesting to see what the Bruins do in order to keep him around and to get that deal done. What has been your thoughts on his tenure so far and what kind of contract would you be comfortable seeing him get this offseason? What I've seen so far is a very productive defenseman that's uh, really taken to the system and become a leader. Uh, I could definitely see him being a future captain if, if, the, if that truck that's going to back up to his, uh, on his driveway pretty soon because he is going to be getting his qualifying offers. It, it, I think it starts at 7.3. So it's going to be interesting on how this is going to work out, especially in, in years. Uh, not so much the term. The term can definitely be $8 million, but let's see how long. I mean, obviously, the longer the better for a player like this because he's got so much upside, so much more to learn. And, uh, and, and I mean, he's in the conversation for Norris candidate, probably not in, like, your – immediate top three, top five, whatever, but he's been there. He's been voted on and so on, which is all good things to see when, when he's getting eyes from other areas around the league when they, when they consider that voting. I, I, I really want to see him at like 8.5, maybe a little lower. I think that's a fair number. I think Don Sweeney has done a great job talking to these players like Bergeron, uh, maybe not Bergeron, but like Marshan, uh, maybe not Marshan, Pasenak. And, um, and Coyle and all these guys to, to get down to a, a, a team-friendly deal where we have uh, cap, cap space to, um, to make other moves if, if needed, if, you know. So, yeah, it, I, I, like, I like Charlie a lot. I mean, he's, a, he's so mobile. He can be effective on the power play. And, um, you know, I think he's a, he's a decent pen, penalty killer. But his presence on the ice has just uh, been a, something to watch and, and you know, I've seen some really good defensemen come through this uh, Boston Bruins organization over the years, and I'm just so proud to see this one, you know, coming from BU. He's a New York kid coming from BU and, uh, the, you know, the United States uh, developmental program and, you know, up through the ranks. And now he's just uh, just one of those defensemen that, you know, if you in fantasy drafts, you're always going to want to take because his, uh, his point production is just getting better and better every year. 
Well, even for myself, like when I see McAvoy, I see a very talented player. And yeah, he's not the biggest body in the world, but you can definitely tell the talent's there. You can tell the hockey smarts is there. Regarding a contract, and I do think that seven and a half would be pretty decent, but I wonder if he's going to be looking at other guys like the Morgan Rileys, like the Thomas Shabbats, maybe even Dougie Hamilton, what he got this offseason where you think, well, okay, well, that's where the benchmark is right now for star defensemen in the NHL. Yeah. That's a fair fair point when you look at market value. But it, like I said before, Don Sweeney does have a way of sitting players down and just say, Look, work with us. You know, We all want to win here. You want to win. We all want to win. But they, they're not going to be that team under this regime, uh, regime that's going to be paying $10 million players. You know, And, and sometimes, it, I mean, it, it's a good thing. But other times, I think that it might scare some free agents away as well because they're coming in as a free agent signing. And, uh, you know, you, you sit down with these guys and you always think that your, your, your value is a little higher, but they're going to try to talk you down and try to breathe that, you know, let's do it as a group and not, you know, for the paycheck. But um, it, like I said, it remains to be seen. I mean, like I said, eight, five is as much as I want to go. I, it's like, I, 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 he, he's a, he's worth $10 million, but to make things work, if, if this year doesn't, doesn't pan out like I, I hope it does. It's like you want to have that flexibility to address those needs uh, moving forward to keep that kind of window open for these uh, these these veterans and these young kids that are still learning. Well, I think, and I, I do agree with you. Like I don't, I wouldn't see him getting ten million in Boston, but I think that if say the Bruins do that, well, then all of a sudden you're now running into a situation like the Leafs are where Tampa is where every single year you have to look at your roster and be like, okay, who are we cutting now to make this work? Right. Because you're seeing the cap crunch, the Leafs are going under where you have the big three and now you're losing Connor Brown. You're losing guys like that in Toronto and same in Tampa Bay where they lost their entire third line right there. Talk about cap casualties. I always go back to Chicago in previous years once they signed Patrick Kane to ten million, they and and, and uh, Taves to ten million. Look at the casualties they had: Tara Tara Vinen, Antern Pranarin. Yeah, say his name very well. You know, so Chicago spent a lot of people that that they had to cut bait with because of they're paying these high salaries. I mean, a, a, basically a quarter of your your salary cap is paid into like two or three people, and that. I mean, it, it has worked for Stan Bowman. He's got three Stanley Cups and so on. But still, it's just at a time you you're pissing through your prospect pool so quickly that you can't really see them develop at the highest level, and you're just giving them up quick. Yeah, but there's always the flip side of those three Stanley Cups where the prospect pool is pretty shallow because you're not exactly getting high draft picks. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. As I said earlier, the trade deadline acquisition of Taylor Hall from the Buffalo Sabres was an absolute slam dunk as he went from a guy whose career looked like it was almost on life support as he was on his third team in two seasons to finding new life in Boston where he had 14 points in 16 games and then 19 points in 37 games in Buffalo, which resulted in him landing that 4 by 24 contract. Coming into this season, Hall will be expected to continue the success he's had so far in his Bruins tenure playing alongside Charlie Coyle and Craig Smith what has been your thoughts on Hall's short tenure in Boston and what kind of expectations should the fans have for him this season I'm like flirting with the idea that he could be a 30 goal scorer maybe a 30 30 type of player I know he's an aging veteran but he's still got the speed 
I think he works well with his line mates. Uh, it's going to be tough to see him without Krejci because those guys really connected a lot during the regular season and even in the uh, the first round against Washington last year. Uh, and like I said, they shut they got shut down against the Islanders in the second round. But um, if you can get Charlie Coyle to, I mean, I'm not saying Charlie Coyle's got to score like so many goals, but if he can be that benefiting factor up the middle i mean he's a big strong boy he's got that yarma yager kind of ass that his puck possession is a, a totally unbelievable but if you can get him shooting more and dishing that uh, that filthy sauce to to smith who loves to shoot his 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 shooting numbers or his, uh, i don't know the analytics we call for shooting but they're off the charts because he does every time he gets the puck he's always looking at the net and if he sees an opportunity to throw one on and create an opportunity he's going to do it but if you can get Coyle to like seriously like like make these these really crisp pass filthy sauce passes, and get these goals, I think it's going to be really good for a player like uh, Taylor Hall. But then on the flip side, Taylor Hall is the type of player that can also drive that line if Coyle seems to struggle in that position if he's granted to be there in the first place. Yeah, and he's definitely proven that at times he doesn't always come up big with his teams with the exception of when he was in Jersey winning a Hart Trophy. But I have to admit, though, like, it's weird how in one year, Taylor Hall went from a guy that everybody assumed was going to get, you know, an eight-year contract, big-time money, and now a year later, he gets a four-year, $24 million contract. But maybe that's, maybe he took a pay cut to stay in Boston because he's proven that, hey, he's a pretty talented and so far a pretty valuable player on that second line. I kind of think that it was, like, planned this way. Believe it or not, like, last year when Buffalo signed him for $8 million, I believe he could go there, play with a player like Jack Eichel, and play with the players the players that are young enough that he thought that could be, you know, kind of a, a way to pad his stats and so on. Because he, he'd be lining up with, like, the top free agent next year. You know, so the more, score, the more goal scoring he was going to do and so on, the more his value was going to go up, and he, my, I, you know, his camp and himself might have thought that that would have been a good thing to do, but obviously that didn't work out in Buffalo too well because uh, that continues to be a dumpster fire. But getting him at the price that the Bruins did and the term, I think, is good for him. He's very comfortable here. He's always said he likes Boston when he visits, and now he really likes it as, as he's living here now. And I think we're just going to see a different Taylor Hall because he's going to be going through the rigors of of being in the area for the whole time, uh, working out with the team, uh, training with the team, and just and starting a, a fresh season uh, and not splitting time with uh, you know another team and then via trade come here and you know which we, which immediately kicked off. I mean, it was really good to see him uh, get on the scoring production. Uh, but then again, I do want to see it in the playoffs when it does come. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that about Boston because Boston has always had that reputation as a very player-friendly city. And whether you see it with the Bruins or you see it with the Patriots or the Red Sox or the Celtics, you see that players that go to the to Boston, they end up retiring there. It's kind of like St. Louis. They just go there and they fall in love with the city and the fans. Yeah, I mean, winters here are, are they can be bad, but the rest of the year, it's very comfortable. It's, uh, it's good golf weather. It's... Uh, I, I mean, I love living in this area. I live 40 miles north of Boston, uh, but I travel down to Providence and, and soon to be traveling to Maine to cover the East Coast Hockey League. Hopefully we get credentials there, but we do have credentials with the with the, uh, the American club. So I, I love traveling around and, and, and 
living in New England. So I can actually see why a player would too, because there's so much to do in the area and when it comes to training and working out and having some really good facilities. This is this is a, a top-notch place, especially when the uh, the Warrior Ice Arena in Brighton, Massachusetts was built a couple of years ago. Uh, that just took everything to a whole new level. Trust me, you should have seen the, the practice facility they used to train in. It was called the, uh, the Restushka Center, or the Restushka Arena in Wilmington, Mass. And it was like a uh, one of those like hangers. Mm-hmm. And it was tin, and it was cold, and it was terrible. It was, I mean, they had to like drop the temperature probably way below zero just to keep that because they they were doing development camps in, in, um, in June and July and the place was just like absolutely freezing because if you, if you even came up to like zero, you would, uh, you would pretty much melt the ice out there. It was a, it was just a a real shithole if I can say that on your, on your podcast. No, absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's very funny when you, when you sorry, no, sorry, I was going to say, it's very funny when you see some of these NHL teams and their old practice facilities, because I think the Rangers, I think they used to practice out of whatever college in like upstate New York or wherever the hell they were practicing out of. And it was just a little shithole college fucking rank. It wasn't even like MSG. It wasn't like what the Bruins have at, in Boston. It's just like, God, what the hell is going on here, you guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to send you a picture of this old, this old, uh, this old barn um, on Twitter later on when we're done with this interview. But um, I mean, literally, the track was outside, and it was like a hundred degrees outside, and these kids are running back and forth, and it, that's how they're doing the training, and it was just so bad. But now, it, now the track is inside; it's all air conditioned. It's very user friendly, and these guys love it. And I guarantee that. Well, I can't guarantee, but. Um, I get you know you can kind of can guarantee, but when it's somebody's like a free agent and they're and they're going around, you know, looking for places to play and so on, that's an attractive thing to see is your workout facilities and how your training staff is and so on. So that's just a huge upgrade to get people here. Well, and I'm hearing a lot of very positive things about the practice facility in Columbus because I know Mark Mathot yeah. he used to play for the Senators on the Wally Mathot show. He talks so highly about it. He says, says yeah, it's amazing that. You know, you have this beautiful arena, and you have this practice facility next to it, and it's like, this is this is, what the hell is this? Like, this is so nice. Like, he's not used to that, right? He's used to playing in a crappy little rank that they practice out of. Yeah, and uh, now if I'm not mistaken, you're a Canadian citizen, correct? I am. Yeah. It, now the facility in Edmonton, mm-hmm. which is a brand, it's a brand new rank, probably what three or four or five years old now. Does that have its own practice facility? inside of it uh, like alongside the the whole hmm. i couldn't tell you i actually to be perfectly I, honest i okay. couldn't tell you about that no i think it might but i'm not sure but like the way things are going on these days with having everything close by mm-hmm. it's it's so user-friendly for the player you know it, it's continual um uh improvement and and not having to travel like 30 miles away because it's just i don't know that kind of kind of defeats the purpose if you have to like travel a long distance away just to go and train and then travel all the way back to just to come home and relax yeah i mean unless you're traveling together on a bus or something but if you're going there by yourself it's just a pain it's kind of like in florida i remember scott gomez did one with the i did an article with the players tribune and he said the same thing he says the practice facility was like an hour away from sunrise Yeah. yeah yeah it's kind of ridiculous oh it is 
So, coming into the season, one major change for the Bruins will be in goal, with the signing of former Buffalo Sabres starter Linus Olmark, who signed a four-year, $20 million contract. Olmark's tenure in the NHL so far has actually been more successful than people realize, posting winning records with the Sabres and really solid numbers to boot. As an NHL goalie, what has been your thoughts on Linus Olmark, and what kind of expectations should the fans have for him this season? I think it's going to be good. I think he was the uh, basic seal of the draft when it comes to goaltender, like pretty much the best one available in free agency. Uh, a little, a little kind of uh, weirded out about the term and the uh, the, uh, the the tr- uh, contract clauses that went along with it. The money, I'm not so worried about. I think that's a very fair five million dollars for having a guy like that in free agency. But apparently, to me as a fan and so on, I think this is a message to. You know that if something happens to another goal, you I know we're going to talk, we're going to touch on later on, that this is an insurance policy to you know to move forward with, uh, and I think it's a smart idea to do that. Uh, I think Almack's going to work well with Jeremy Swayman. He's a, he's a new kid, just out of the NCAA, played a bunch of games for the Bruins, not not a bunch, but you know uh, I think ten, played some American Hockey League, and and just had a solid first year professional. And um, yeah, I think that he's going to have the backup uh, role as is uh, as his as Allmark's salary will dictate the starting minutes right there. Like you said, he does have some weird numbers in Buffalo because you just think about Buffalo and being just a terrible team. But he was like one of the shining stars on that club, uh, having a you know uh, it, it's a 500 record, but it, you if you looked at it, you probably think twice. But I think the way he's going to work with. Um, goaltending coach Bob Asenza and Mike Dunham in Boston, I think it's going to be beneficial to him moving forward. Let's see if he can keep healthy. I know he's got a little bit of health issues, but that, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but I, I expect all Mike to have a really big year. Uh, just a new environment, a better structured defense out in front of him is always going to do a goaltending better, especially one at his age where, where Don Sweeney believes that um, they, he said that they we were getting a goaltender that's in his prime. So it's a really good time to like grab this guy as a free agent and 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 have him as that insurance policy. But also, I mean, if he's playing well, I mean, it, it, it's just um, it's a win-win in, in all situations. And I like the way that um, he's going to come in and and be a mentor to a player like Jamie Swayman, who I know is he's very excited to work with. Well, I think even for myself, I really do think Boston got the better goalie here in Linus Olmark because when you looked at the free agency market in 2021, you saw guys like Freddie Anderson or Antti Ratner, or some of these other goalies on the market who maybe were more, I don't want to say marquee names, but they were more well-known names. And it would have been easy for Don Sweeney to go out and be like, okay, we landed this guy that everybody seems to know, but they went out and got a guy who's in his prime. He's still pretty young. And honestly... Like I said, he put up pretty good numbers in Buffalo, despite the team that's right in front of him. Yeah, I I actually uh, I don't remember the guy, the goaltender's name. He went to Colorado from Arizona. Oh, uh, Ratna. No. Oh, uh, Kemper. Yes, Darcy Kemper. Yeah. I was actually really thinking that the Boston Bruins are going to go after him, but the price that uh, the Avalanche paid was a first round pick. I thought that was a little much. Like he could have gotten a second round and you know a player or whatever. I know Andrew Raycroft was really high on it, former Boston Bruin and Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, Andrew Raycroft was really high on Darcy Kemper and so on and thought that the Bruins could, would definitely go after him. But the Allmark one was like one that was out of left field. But when you look at it, it was just more or less like, 
he was the best goaltender available at that particular moment. And, um, you know, the, the deal got done, which is, I, like I said, I don't like that trade protection, but um, like if he's, if he's really having a tough time, it's really hard to move him with that trade protection. But, um, and also if, if, if Swayman definitely outplays him, what do you do? It's like, is that going to be a buyout candidate for the future? But um, no, I, I mean, I like, I like the Allmark signing. I think he's going to do, a lot better than a lot of people think. I mean, this is the this is the type of tandem. If, if if left alone, we'll talk about it later. If left alone, has the potential like being a Jennings Trophy winner. So I know you mentioned Andrew Raycroft, and I felt that that's the perfect segue into talking about the next guy we've got to talk about. Former Boston Bruin goaltender Tuka Rask. Now, this upcoming season will be the first season since 2006-07 that won't see Tuka Rask in a Bruin sweater. And Rask's tenure in Boston. Overall, was a pretty remarkable one. He posted the most wins by Bruin goalie with 306, most games played with 560, second in shots with 52, also winning the Vezna in 2014 and a cup in 2011. Despite this, and I, I have to wonder if this is more of a hot take, but I just kind of feel that Tuka Rask unfairly got criticized for things that maybe wasn't his so much his fault in Boston. And I feel because like he wasn't always on equal footing to me as say a Tim Thomas because he had won a cup. And honestly, I feel that him not winning a cup as a starter is an overall serious knack on his legacy as a, as a Bruin, even though, like I said, he has the numbers, he has the awards to back it up. So regarding Tuka's tenure in Boston, like what was your thoughts on it? And if he was to retire tomorrow, is he the greatest Bruin goaltender? Of them all. You're always going to have that caveat of, of who wins the cup and who's the better goaltender. And right now, it's always going to be hands down Tim Thomas. But um, to me, it's not about cups. Because I watched Timmy Thomas years where I thought he was not a very good goaltender. But in his last couple of years, they were just explosive. Explosively good. Like, he won two Vezinas, Vesnas, whatever you want to call it. I always mess up that name. But, um, you know, and, and he, was, he did a fantastic job orchestrating and basically carried the team on his back to win that 2011 Stanley Cup champion and my first one that I've ever seen in my life. But for me, the better goaltender goes to the guy who wasn't a cup winner, but that put up these outstanding numbers. I think Tuka Rask has been a phenomenal goaltender throughout his career. Yes, he's had games where you question his, you know, his, his, uh, his passion for the game and so on. And, you know, could he have made that save? Absolutely. But I don't hate a goalie like that. I mean, there's always going to be, you know, when you, when the band sucks out on, on, a, on a gig, you always blame the drummer. You know, it's always the last guy at defense that, that always gets it. And, and it happens to be in goal in Boston because we, uh, we have a, a high praise for our goaltenders in, in this town. And, you know, I, I don't think he gets enough respect. But uh, he is a free agent, and he just had hip surgery, been seen in Boston at, at uh, Fenway Park at concerts, walking around, going shows. He seems to believe that he's going to be available post-surgery uh, and recovery, that he's going to be, like, available late December, possibly early, early January. And... That puts a really interesting situation into into play because you're obviously going to be looking at how Olmark and Swayman are going to play. And if um, if those guys are really good and they're like, you know, Jennings potential, I would actually take a pass on bringing back to Garask at any, at any price, whether he takes a, um, a hometown discount or not. I'm hearing the asking price from several people that have been close to him that he, he likes he would like to hit the $2 million range. 
And I think that there'd be way too much for a guy that just had hip surgery and a goaltender as aggressive as he is that uses his hips so much. I think that's a little bit, to, uh, a little bit much to ask. So obviously it's going to depend on how he recovers and, and, and his rehabilitation and so on. But also, like I said, if, if Swayman and Olmark are the cat's meow, you do not bring in a goaltender at $2 million because you're going to have to move a roster player to make that cap space available. Yeah. Well, now that Tuka Rask is on the free agency market, do you see that he could be maybe a low-risk backup at $2 bucks somewhere else? Honestly, as a Boston fan and one that pays attention to the news around here and, and every, um, every new uh, um, press conference and so on, Tuka's been saying that he doesn't want to play anywhere. I think this is this is it for him. He wants to do. He's another player that wants to get it done with the core that that is still here, and I believe he wants to get that one as a starter. But I don't know. I just I, I if 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 all else fails, I would definitely bring him in. But um, we really have to see what this team has to offer in the crease with these two goaltenders that they currently have before you uh, make any drastic changes like that. And, and I'm not a Tuka hater at all. I appreciate what he did for the organization and posting those numbers for so many years, but there's a time when a goaltender that's coming up through the ranks that might be a little cheaper, like Jeremy Swayman, who's uh, still under his entry-level deal, that offers you some good value at that $975,000 where you can make more cap adjustments in other areas like defense or, or forward if you need it. I just don't see a, a roster player coming off of this uh, Boston Bruins team to make uh, make way for him. Yeah, and I was really appreciative that I can get your thoughts on Tuka Raska's tenure in Boston because, like I said, as an outsider, it always seemed like despite the success he has, it didn't seem like the Bruin fans, and you put it best, he didn't seem like he was the most respected goaltender that the Bruins have ever had. It just seemed like a lot of the shade, a lot of the blame was put on him, even though, say, this player wasn't scoring, this guy couldn't play defense, whatever. But even when you're saying, well, goalies in Boston, and I was looking back in their history, I mean, when you mentioned guys like Cheevers, Andy Moog, I don't know about Byron Defoe, but when you mentioned guys like that, you seem like the fans just, wholeheartedly loved those guys when they were in Boston. Yeah. Once you get that cup, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that grew up in this area that that was their first cup, much like mine. So now you're setting the bar. Who got that cup? Who was in the crease during that? And who um, busted their ass to basically, you know, win it on, on their own. And that unfortunately is the threshold for a lot of Boston Bruins fan. If you're a goaltender in Boston Bruins and you can't win a cup, I mean, it's it's not very easy to play here, uh, and and hopefully you stay off of social media because <laughs> it's it's not a pretty scene. Twitter could be very uh, very aggressive when it comes to uh, the Tuka takes. Yeah, well, if he had won a cup in say 2013 or 2019, are his critics silenced at that point? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it would be now we're at a tie. Now we're looking at you won a cup and now you still have all these career highs and and franchise numbers. Yeah, now we're now we're like leaning towards uh, saving the ship from uh, from all the Tuka hate. Another guy who departed the Bruins this offseason was centerman David Krejci as he decided to return to his native Czech Republic. Krejci has been a guy who often skated in the shadows of his more well-known counterparts, like the Mark Savards, the Patrice Bergerons, Bad Marchands, but was always a consistent 50 to 60 goal or 50, 60 point producer in Boston. And he's often been seen as one of the most underrated centers in the NHL. 
What was your thoughts on Krejci returning to the Czech Republic, and what were your thoughts on his tenure as a Bruin? Uh, point per game player, basically, and, and just a beast in the playoffs when you really needed him. Uh, you know, he was he's always going to get criticized for the $7 million contract and posting 18, 19 goals a year, but it's those assists. It's those 60, 50, 60, 70 assists that he puts in a year that, that what counts and what drives that, that line, even though that he was a very slow player. It was very methodical the way he entered the zone and so on, but um, he, was an, he was an effective player, and you got to see a real good spark out of, um, uh, out of him when Taylor Hall came. It was almost like, I finally got my winger, but then again, all of a sudden, now Taylor Hall signs a four-year deal, and now I'm out of here. So it's, it's a little bit interesting right there, but I mean, good on David to think about his family and so on. He wanted to bring his kids over to learn the, the, the way of you know, his country and how they speak and so on and wanted to play for them. And he's been saying that he's wanted to do this for a while. Um, I don't, I, I honestly don't think that uh, he's the type of player that's going to want to come back. I think this is an opportunity for him to move forward away from the Boston Bruins, even though that he left some shady stuff out there saying, this is not the last time you'll see me in Boston. So I don't know if that's something in the future because he's an aging, he's 36 years old right now. I'm not sure if the Boston Bruins have the cap space or want to entertain bringing on a player that's going to be a year older. He needs to be signed by uh, an NHL club by, by December 15th. And if not signed, and he's still playing a pro league over there after that threshold, after that date, uh, he's waiver eligible to come over here. So basically, he'll sign a deal with, let's say, the Boston Bruins, and then he's going to have to freaking go through a waiver process where another team can come and get him. So I, I don't know the way this whole thing has been told and relayed, and it's been very strange. But uh, I honestly don't see him back in Boston. So, Mark, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule today to join me for this segment. Now, before I let you go for the evening, where can our listeners find you on social media, and where can they find the Black and Gold Productions? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, Black and Gold two seven seven. You can find the uh, our, our company Twitter at Black and Gold Productions. You can follow the, uh, the our podcast at Black and Gold Pod. And uh, read all our writings at blackandgoldhockey.com. We have a great team of writers, uh, over 30 people. We have a podcast network with uh, 11 shows. So we just, we, we, we keep, we're keeping growing and always looking for help. If you're interested in your Boston Bruins fan, you like writing and, and podcasting, we have an opportunity for you. Now, Mark, the final thing we got to, I got to ask you about anyway, before we close out this segment, and we're asking everybody who do these segments, this is the first season since the 2018-2019 season to go back to the full 82-game season. Teams are going back to the original division format. So I got to ask the question, where do you see the Boston Bruins finishing in the Atlantic come April 2022? Like I said before, when we basically started this this recording, I, I think this team is going to shock some, some fans, especially ones in Boston. So I could actually project them to be a second line I mean, a second, um, a second ranked team in the in the Atlantic, and um, uh, here's another shocker. I, I have Florida leading the Atlantic. I have Tampa Bay in third. I have um, who else? Jesus, I should have wrote this down. But yeah, I, I basically have Boston as second. I don't know if I would go that far to say I think they're going to finish second. I think they are going to finish probably 
third or fourth maybe in the Atlantic. But, I mean, with how Ottawa finished last season, if that's the team the Sens are going to ice this year, they might give Boston some pretty good competition there in the Atlantic. But, you know, what's funny is that I've been saying to other people on these segments that I also see the Florida Panthers finishing first in our division this year. You know, when, you, when you're thinking about Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay hasn't... Tampa Bay won two Stanley Cups on abbreviated seasons. And the last time they were in the playoffs, after a full 82-game season, they got swept by Columbus, which is kind of weird. So I expect Tampa Bay to take a significant drop down to third at least. I don't in Montreal, I'm not even sure if I put Montreal way up there either. No. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not going to put Ottawa up there much higher, but I think that with the way that um, the Senator's team has drafted lately, and hopefully you guys can re-sign Kachuk. I think he's still RFA, right? Yep. Yeah, there yeah, was so. talks right now that there's still talks whether he's going to be at training camp when it starts here in a couple of days at the time of this recording. But, you know, honestly... <laughs> okay, I'll everybody a beer for that one. But, no, I see... <laughs> uh, hopefully I do see Brady's extension, whether it's going to be a long-term bridge deal, remains to be seen, right? So... Yeah, I think that Ottawa's going to have a, a. I think they're going to be really good in the next couple of years, just because of the way they have been drafted in the past. They've been, um, you know, they haven't been a great teams, which, you know, obviously if you're not in the rankings, you're not making playoffs. You're going to get higher picks and so on. And um, and, and a sneakily good move that they did was getting on Pierre Maguire. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't give this guy enough credit. He isn't an encyclopedia and so on, mm-hmm. but the way he could possibly advise somebody to construct a younger team and make a winner in Ottawa, I think it's a really good move, and I'm, I'm excited to see that. Mark, thank you so much for doing this. No problem at all. Happy to be here, and keep up the uh, awesome work on the, uh, one of my favorite Ottawa Senator podcasts. <laughs> Representing the three-time Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning is a reporter for SB Nation's Raw Charge. Please welcome to the show from the city known as Champa Bay, Matthew Estevez. Matthew, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, boys. How are you guys doing? Not too, bad? not too bad, man. Not too bad. Super excited to have you on the program. This is the very first time we've ever had somebody from the Tampa Bay Lightning fan base that we've had, given that Ottawa and Tampa are both expansion brethren we're very excited to start something new here on the show today uh, man i am here i'm ready to talk let's do that hockey hell yeah so matthew one of the great things about doing these segments like this here on the show especially with people we've never talked with or worked with before is like we like to do a little bit of getting to know them and while this question may seem a bit redundant given that you live in the city we would love to know how did you become a fan of the Tampa Bay Lightning. I was born here. I was born here back in 89, and I moved. I was raised split. So I spent so I spent my first two-ish years living here in Tampa, and then my father got a job in West Virginia, and so I was then raised in Charleston, West Virginia, until I was about 14. 
And then I moved back to finish high school in a town north of Tampa called uh, Newport Ritchie. It's only like 30 minutes north of uh, the city. And after that, I went out into the world. And I mean, I've always been a Lightning fan. I mean, I've, I've been playing hockey since I was like three years old, basically. And my dad took me to <clears throat> Lightning games when I was a wee little thing before we moved and everything like that. And we always followed them when I was little in West Virginia. So I've for, since day one, I've always been a Lightning fan through the thick and thin of, you know, being a filter for the Yakuza to, you know, the glory days of Martin St. Louis and Vinny LeCavalier to OK Hockey being the tire fire that that was to Jeff Vinnick resurrecting the franchise and honestly saving it. Man, that's really awesome to hear how you became a Lightning fan, given that, as I said, like this is the first time we've ever got a chance to chat with anybody from the Lightning fan base. Now, you did say Wait, that your dad... You said something about the Yakuza? Yeah, so I don't know if this is entirely fact, but in the 90s, the Lightning were linked to like being in some form of money laundering scheme for the Yakuza. Oh. It, it's never it's never been like definitively proven, but you can just go Google that stuff and you'll see it pop up. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, because this is right around the time. This is like right before they drafted Le Cavalier, correct? Yep, right before. No. The years, no. The years leading up to that point. Okay. Actually, it's funny. I do remember reading about that, but the one comment I was going to make there, because you said your dad used to take you to all the games. Did you ever go to Lightning Games when you played at a Tropicana Field? No, we never went to those. Never went to those, which sucks. Which sucks. Okay. So it would be cool as heck. But I did, I, did, I did go to the original bar. I did go to the original bar, because that was my last year of living there. And my dad managed to snatch some tickets for that, and I went to that. I don't remember it that much. I was like... I think three or four or something like that. So I don't remember a whole lot, but I remember like bits and pieces. You know how it is when you're three or four. You have like little flashes. So another thing we like to do on the show, again, while working with somebody that we've never got a chance to work with before, is talk to them about, about their podcast or blog that they write for. At the time of this recording, you were currently working for SB Nation Raw Chars as a lightning reporter. What inspired you to want to get into writing and how did the opportunity with Raw Charge come about? So... Writing was something I didn't really dabble a whole lot in until I got out of the military. I was in the Navy for eight and a half years. And when I got out in 2016 and moved back to Florida, um, I went I, I went to university. And I was originally, originally a business management major. And I realized very quickly after one semester, this is not for me. It is boring as hell. So I hilariously uh, decided to go more towards something that I had picked up in my like latter years of the Navy where I started writing short stories. I was like, Let me, oh, maybe I can do something with writing. So I basically went the English route. With Raw Charge, I had actually sent a message to them because I had read their stuff for years while I was still on my last deployment in the beginning of 2016. And when I came back to the States in April of 2016 from um, Bahrain, the editor at that time, Fantana, John Fantana, uh, messaged me saying, hey, I'd love to have you. Let's set up an interview or something like that. Okay, cool. Never happened. Didn't hear a peep. All the way basically until December of 2016 where I randomly tweeted Raw Charge, something like, you know, I'd like to write for you or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly what I said. And someone reached out to me and said, hey, do you really want to write for us? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. So they, then they had me do a practice thing, I guess. I, I, did a, I did a preview or something like that. They liked it. They brought me on as a uh, staff writer, and that was kind of it. I started doing previews the entire 20, the remainder of the 2016-2017 season, which was the season they um, – didn't make the playoffs due to injuries and inconsistencies and stuff like that. And then the year after, 
our original person who had the credentials to go into Lightning Gate to be in the press box, um, Clark. Last name Clark. Can't remember his first name, unfortunately. He gave his credentials up because he worked for Emily Arena, so he kind of saw it. Excuse me. He kind of saw it as a conflict of interest. So he said, "Hey, I'm going to give these up. Give it to whoever you want." And since I was the only person actually in Tampa, because we had people in Orlando, and Sarasota, all around who cover the team. Like, you're the only one in Tampa. Do you want it? And I was like, uh, absolutely. And that's what put me down the route of being the, being the reporter. So basically since the 17-18 season, I've been the in-arena reporter for uh, Raw Charge covering the Lightning. So that's kind of how it happened. It was kind of just I just sent a message. They responded, and it kind of went from there. Well, it kind of it – it's funny because with some of the people we have got a chance to work with and – Given that the SB Nation blog that we always associate with with on our show is Silver Seven Sens, and I know I can't remember the blogger. I believe it was Brandon Mackey, or I believe it was Brandon Mackey. Kind of the same thing with him with Silver Seven. It was kind of like he was a fan. He was writing stuff for their fan section, and somebody right running the site reached out to him and was like, "Listen, I've been reading your stuff. I think you should come on and join us." Yeah, sometimes all it takes, man, is just a ask. <laughs> And sometimes that's all it takes. Now, I mean, oh, like it's it's a blog, so it's not like there's this huge barrier of entry. Whereas, you know, getting actually into the media circle—that's a different story. Which is why I'm currently not getting paid to do this, which is a bummer. But I mean, what can you do? Just gotta keep putting your head down and push forward. The 2021 season saw the Tampa Bay Lightning win their third Stanley Cup in franchise history and second of back-to-back titles. After rolling through the season, Tampa Bay started the playoffs against the Florida Panthers in the series Tim and I both dubbed the Sunshine State Showdown in what I felt was actually one of the best playoff series in recent history before taking down Carolina in five, pushing the Islanders to seven games, and then finishing off Montreal in five to win the Stanley Cup. Heading into this season, though, Tampa Bay has now got their sights on the NHL's first three-peat since the early 1980s with most of their roster from last season returning. This will be, Hanzo, the easiest question I will ask you today. What was your thoughts on the Tampa Bay Lightning's 2021 season, and what do you think the odds are that the Lightning will have a three-peat in 2022? You know, we were just so damn that they finally did it in 2020 that... 2020, 2021 was kind of like a wash. Like, if they don't win it, ah, who cares? We won it in 2020. We're happy. But then when the playoffs started, you know, there was there was legitimate concern. Let's let's clear that up right now. There was legitimate concern with Tampa Bay entering the playoffs. They weren't really playing their best hockey. They were getting a little better compared to how they were a month prior to the season ending. But there were still some legitimate questions. The defense wasn't really playing as well as it should have been. Stankos was out. Kucherov had been out all season. You know, are they going to come back? Are they going to hit all, all cylinders? Then game one against Florida happened. Everything changed. The entire expectation for that team changed in game one against the Panthers when Kucherov and Stankos were back because that that and I and I knew in some way it was going to happen. I just didn't think it was going to happen in game one. I thought it happened in game three or four or something like that. And we still beat Florida, but it'd be a, it'd be a hell of a dogfight. But. The way that Kucherov just came back and did not miss a single freaking beat, I was like, yeah, Florida screwed. They're, they're <laughs> Florida screwed. Like, and, and, the thing about, and the thing about it is, like, everyone forgot how good he was. He's a top three player in the league. Like, he is unreal. And no, no one expected him to come back and do what he did. 
And honestly, like you can make the argument that he should have won the Con Spies over Vasilevsky. You can you can legitimately make that argument. I wouldn't say you're wrong saying Vasilevsky or Kucherov. They were both phenomenal. I mean, for Christ's sake, Kucherov was the first guy since Gretzky and Lemieux to have back-to-back 30-point postseasons. That's that's arified territory. Like that is oh god, you know. So once Game One happened, everything changed. At that point, it was like, yeah, this team needs to go all the way. At a minimum, make the Cup final. Because if they're playing like this against a team that has routinely kind of kicked their ass in the regular season, then they should absolutely go all the way. And they did. They took care of business against Florida. They made Carolina look completely inexperienced. And then that Islander series, I lost some years off my life. Not gonna lie, I lost some years off. Every Islander series, though, dude, (laughs) that team works. That team, man. I, I mean. You can say all you want about they don't have top-end skill besides Barzal. Yeah, you're right. But you know what? They find ways because they play a nasty way of hockey that just makes life hell for you. And they have such they have such underrated shooters in general that you just don't think about it. Like, Brock Nelson's an underrated shooter. Anders Lee, God, God, God forbid, if he was healthy, who knows how that series goes? Who knows? Anders Lee's a great player. So once they got past the Islanders... And we're just sitting there expect, waiting to see who's going to come out of the Vegas-Montreal series. As soon as Montreal, I was like, oh, yeah, we got <laughs> no offense, No offense to Montreal, but let's be honest. That was a Cinderella run, and it was going to end. <laughs> it was going to end. If it was Vegas, uh, I don't know. Vegas has its history beating the crap out of us. 100%. And, I mean, we said the same thing about Montreal. It was just like, as soon as they knew they were playing Tampa, I went ahead and I said, you know what? I'm picking Tampa Bay in five games. Now, before we move on, I actually want to bring this up because I was actually in a hockey pool this past offseason, and I picked the Tampa Bay Lightning in five games the entire way, right from day one. I said Tampa Bay in five. I won $420, and I'll show you. Hey! There you go. Right there. There you go. There you go. It's nice to see your expansion brother and came through for my team, at least. Respect for the balls to make that. Yes. Respect for the balls to make that. Yeah, ball. like, he's doing this day one when it could very easily have fucking been uh, Tampa, Vegas, or Tampa, Colorado, which would have been yeah. a hell series. Dude, oh my god, could you imagine a Tampa, Colorado series? I mean, just, just, just inject, the, inject the adrenaline into my veins. Oh. I'm sad that ta- Vegas fell apart. Colorado fell apart, but Vegas fell apart in succession. Well, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. So... Which, when you look at what Montreal did against everyone they played in the postseason, now obviously the Tavares injuries, the Tavares injury is tragic. Like, let's be honest, mm-hmm. that injury impacted that series immensely. If they, if Toronto has Tavares, they probably win that series. Let's be honest, yeah. because when Tavares went down, it exposed how weak Toronto is at center. If, if Tavares goes down, who, who, who who's going to take that spot? Who? Spezza. Kerfoot? Spezza? Spencer's still a good player, but yeah. Spencer's not, not a top six player at this point in his career. He's I not. Mean. You know? I can't see it. Pull it up. Oh. There you go. There <laughs> you go. The prime of Spencer. The prime of Spencer. Yeah. Dude, prime Spencer. <laughs> he was good. God damn, he was good. Um, but when you look at what Montreal did, Montreal made every team play the way they play. And Montreal might not have top end guys like top, top-end guys, but their drop-off from one line to the next line isn't much. 
So they're just coming at you in ways of just a good hockey team. They're a fundamentally good hockey team, and they don't make a lot of mistakes. And let's be honest, Carey Price stood on his head. Let's be honest. He really did. He had a great playoff. But Montreal never played a team as deep as Tampa, especially down the middle. Because let's be honest, Vegas' biggest issue is down the middle. Chandler Stevens is your top center. Okay. He was a fourth-liner in Washington, and now is thrust to be a first-liner in Vegas, and he's done admirably. But let's be honest, Chandler Stevenson's not going to move the needle much for you, no matter how no matter how well he drives play. He's not to the same caliber as a Matthews, as a Tavares, as a Stamkos, as a Point, you know, as um, even a Shifley, you know. So Montreal did an exceptional job of just making teams play their way, and the problem they ran into when they came against Tampa is that Tampa could play any way you want. And that's the big thing that won us the 2020 Cup, is that we can come in and play with it. You want to play chippy? We can play chippy. You want to play four-checking? We can play four-checking. You want to play speed and talent? We can play speed and talent. We can play any way you want. And that's ultimately what sunk them. And the fact that Vasilevsky was just better. Because let's be honest, Price was outstanding those last two games. He really was. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. I mean, and even, like, if, you, if our listeners were to go back and listen to our Cup Final recap... That's exactly what we said. This is like Montreal. There's no way they should have been anywhere in that series. And I remember saying to our representative from Montreal on our last episode, and we asked him, I wonder how Montreal's cup run last year would have been looked if Kucherov in the final two minutes of game four had scored while Shea Weber was in the penalty box. That's, that's actually a really good point. It really is. So there's, there's just so many what ifs. And I mean, the fact that Tampa came out and kind of just random roughshed in those first two games kind of really put every, especially national media. Like I felt like national media was like hyping up Montreal to the sense of like, Oh, Carrie Price is going to carry him all the way through. And then the first two games happened. They're like, Oh, we forgot how good that team is. <laughs> we forgot how good, like again, Montreal never played a team with the center depth that Tampa had. Top line point, second line Sorelli, third line Gord. Like, what are you supposed to do? Like, we, we literally had a top line that was the best line in the entire playoffs. We had two top-tier second lines that we we obviously lost one due to the offseason and everything like that. But, like, what do you, that, that is how you win championships, is you have a top-flight line, and then it's not you have deep checking and deep depth. No, you have two second lines that just go out and just be buzzsaws. And then you have a fourth line that just treads water. And that's how you win championships. And also you have a defense that doesn't allow a whole lot of mistakes, which Tampa really honestly didn't allow a whole lot of mistakes in general. So with the core of the Tampa Bay Lightning signed long-term to big money, moving forward, Tampa Bay saw some pieces of their team depart this offseason with guys like David Savard heading to Montreal and Yanni Gord to the Seattle Kraken. The only guy who really isn't under contract long-term is centerman Andre Palat. And Palat's a guy who had a really solid season last year, recording 46 points in 55 games before recording 13 points in 23 games. That's going to be a tough guy to get under contract, given that the Lightning are currently under a cap crunch. Regarding Andre Palat, do you see Tampa Bay keeping him around past next season? And if he does stick around, what kind of contract do you see the Lightning giving him? It's hard to project what Palat's going to get. He's in his 30s, early 30s, I might add. He's got his quote-unquote big contract. We'll see if the hometown discount comes into play and they can get him lower. Would it be nice to have Pallad stay? Absolutely. Pallad is a fan favorite. Everyone loves him. He is the straw that stirs the drink, as Cooper said a few years ago. 
He does all the little things that you don't really pay attention to, and he is a deceptively good playmaker. A contract coming back in, I, it depends on what the man wants. If he wants to get paid the same, the way he's get paid now, which is like $5 million, it's it, it can't work. He's got to take probably at least a million, million and a half pay cut, because right after him, you got Sorelli coming up, you got Sergev coming up for their non-bridge deals. So, you know, it's... It's going to be tricky. It's going to be tricky. And they could have alleviated some of this if they had gone a different route, the expansion draft. Something that I had thrown around on Twitter back uh, back then was, you know, the possibility of exposing McDonough or trying to work a deal with Seattle to have them take McDonough. Not to say that McDonough is bad. McDonough was fantastic this postseason. But McDonough is a declining asset at this point. At some point, his, his, his the mileage is going to catch up to him, and that contract's going to be pretty ugly. Right now, it's bearable just because of how good he's been. But the way that defensemen like him have historically aged, it's worrisome. Could he buck the trend? Absolutely. Could he do as a Dino Char and still be an extremely effective defenseman? Sure. At seven point eight million, I don't know. So I, I pitched that if they had, if they gone that route and been able to keep Gord, that makes things a lot easier. But I mean, if Tampa can get Palat on a next contract at a discount somewhere in the threes or something like that, that'd be fantastic. Do I think it's plausible not entirely i don't think Ballot will take that big of a pay cut i think he'll just go up someplace else and there's also the possibility that we just might trade him there's that there is that possibility a lot of us at raw charge we're thinking about the possibility of you know trading him over this offseason to help with the cap situation and put one of the younger players into that top six spot uh preferably alex barry boulet that's not the route the lightning took the lightning decided to supplement their team with a lot more veterans to be a much more older team i personally don't think that's going to work out too well but again, this team, this front office has historically made very, very smart moves. So, I mean, for Christ's sake, they made Luke Shed look like a good NHLer. That says something. <laughs> um, and, and Zach Bogosian. We signed Zach Bogosian. Zach Bogosian looks good. Signed a nice contract at Toronto. Like, so, it's just one of those things where it just depends what the player wants. It really does. And Tampa is a team that is notorious for really, really getting value out of their contracts. So we'll see. That's all I can really say, because I don't. I mean, the, the team doesn't talk. Literally, the team literally has like a fire clause in people's contracts. Like you don't talk to media about stuff like that. So we don't get little insider things like that until until they want us to know. Okay. Well, and I know you mentioned that the Lightning have been very good with giving really good contracts. Do you feel that now, Stevie? Since Steve Eisenman has departed the team for Detroit, and I'm sorry if I'm blanking on the Lightning's current GM. Baseball. Breezewaugh, thank you. Do you see Breezewaugh kind of having the same kind of pull that CBY had in Tampa Bay where he can get these guys under team-friendly contracts? Well, we have, to, we have to remember that as much intimidating power that Steve that Steve Eiserman had, which he had a lot, the guy who worked the magic with the cap was Julian. He was the guy. I mean, he's been the assistant GM since day one. So he's been there through all of those contract negotiations. He knows what Eiserman used to help get guys to sign contracts and, I mean, he signed a lot of these big guys to their current contracts. So I have full faith in Breezeball doing the right thing when it comes to money, especially in a flat cap situation. It's just a matter of, does the player want to stay? You know, does the player want to stay or does the player want to secure a bit more financial security for their family in the future, you know? And, and if a player wants to do that, full power to them. Like, it's their family. they got to do their thing. Palat's got the most adorable little girl in the world. So if he wants to chase the money, chase the money, man. you got your two cups. Chase the money, man. So we were talking a bit about uh, bringing in some veterans to fill in some of the holes left. Two of the guys up front are Corey Perry, who 
had a really good playoff for Montreal. And Pierre-Edouard Belmar, who was part of that Vegas push in their first season, do you guys see those guys uh, coming in and being effective, or do you think they're just plugs at this point? Belmar will be the fourth-line center. That's, that's de facto. I'd like the Belmar signing. Belmar is still – I mean, both of them are still quality players at this point in their careers. Uh, but Belmar addresses a issue that this team has had for years, which is they are not good at face-offs. Um, I personally do not think face-offs is something that we should fret about too much. I feel like they're more situational, so you need to break them down more. Like, how good are you in the final, I don't know, two minutes on face-offs in offensive situations where you need to get the puck on net? How good are you winning those? I feel like that's when face-off win percentage really matters. Overall, I feel like it's a bit inflated. So, Belmar addresses that. Belmar is exceptionally good, and he's an exceptionally good penalty killer. Well, that helps, especially given the fact that the three guys who left, Coleman, Gord, and Goodrell, they were all in the penalty kill, and they were heart and soul guys on the penalty kill. So Belmar also addresses penalty kill situations. Uh, Perry, I don't like Corey Perry. I've never liked Corey Perry. He's a shitbird. Teammates love him. That's cool. I think he's a shitbird. He's still a good player, especially defensively. He's surprisingly good defensively overall, and he's still got an exceptionally good shot. He's still got that high-end skill. Having him on the third line, I'm a little worried about his foot speed. He's definitely lost that over the years, and Tampa's a team that kind of is is a bit more fast-paced. And having him on the third line is going to be a bit of a, we'll see how it goes. But Perry's a pro. There's no issue that Perry's not going to be prepared. So as much as I personally dislike him, he'll be fine on the team. Whether or not he'll be effective, I'm not sure. We'll have to see. You know how it goes with guys at this point in their careers. Sometimes they'll have renaissance years. Sometimes They'll just be plugs. You don't know, honestly. Given Perry's track record, I could. I think he'll fit just fine. Okay. So, re- cool. so regarding Corey Perry, and I know we just talked about him coming to Tampa Bay. Do you think, say, in hindsight, say this coming spring, Tampa Bay doesn't win the Stanley Cup? Do you feel that Corey Perry is going to become the new NHL meme of going zero and three in the Cup Finals? <laughs> you mean Marion Hosa? Yeah, that's you exactly mean, what I was referring mean, to. You mean, you mean late two thousands, early aughts, Marion Hosa? Yes. Uh, maybe. I mean, the whole thing with 3P, it's going to be hard this year, man. It, it really is. What made Tampa so damn good was the fact they could trot out points line with Kucherov and Palat, and they would just run rough shit up people. You could then run out Sorelli, Stamkos, and Kalorn, which is an exceptionally good line. They had finishing problems, which is my biggest worry about Sorelli, is that his finishing, his finishing leaves a lot to be desired. And then we had that third line, which is basically a second line, because when you look at their ice time throughout the year, and especially in the postseason, they played more than the Sorelli line. Like they, like, Cor- like Cooper said, they were the I-don't-give-a-damn line. They go out there, they beat your ass, they come off the ice. Losing that line's a huge blow. Tampa has to figure out how to replace that production from Yanni Gore, Blake Coleman, and Barclay Goodrow. Now, Goodrow didn't really produce a whole lot, but Goodrow was the sandpaper guy who really goes in there as the F1 and breaks things up. Coleman was the F2, making things happen. Gore would rotate between the F2 and the F3 to be in the open space. So losing those three guys is huge. I mean, Coleman is a legit – Coleman and Gore are legit top six forwards. Legitimate top six forwards. You can't argue that. Losing those guys is going to hurt. Whoever's going to replace them on the third line, we don't know. Um, Ross Colton is right now penciled in for that spot. Who are going to be his wingers? And I, I know a lot of people I don't hear are really high on Ross Colton, but I'm kind of one of those guys. I'm like, guys, he wasn't the shooting bender. A huge shooting bidder. And I, like, it's great that he scored the cup-winning goal, but like, we have to be realistic here. Like, We have to see what he actually is in the full season. 
Like, can he actually be a real third-line center, or is he going to be a complimentary player? So that's what it really hinges on. If Colton can embrace that role and be basically half as effective as Gord, then we'll see what happens. But it's going to be a rough road because Tampa's not as deep as they were last year. So the one big storyline for the Tampa Bay Lightning in the postseason last year, outside of being defending Stanley Cup champions, $18 million over the cap. And I already can see your reaction, but I want to get your take on what you thought about the fans' reaction to hearing that they were that much over the cap. Ignorant. That's all I can really say is ignorant. Look, LTIR is there for teams to use. Teams before Tampa have used it. You didn't bitch and moan then. You only bitch and moan about Tampa because you know Tampa's probably going to come in and kick your ass. We bitch and moan about Toronto, don't you worry. Oh, everyone bitches and moans about Toronto. Everyone does. Um, But regardless, when you really break it down, who was the only player in LTIR that was worth a damn that was out? Who was it? Kucherov. Kucherov. Kucherov makes $9.5 million. So, in reality, they had not. They were $9.5 million over simply for Kucherov. Because of Kucherov's like, now you can bluster all you want about your stupid conspiracy theory about, oh, they timed the injury. I'm like, look, man, you don't know shit. I don't know shit. For all we know, Kucherov probably tried to work through it, couldn't do it, tried to go as long as he could, and he was like, look, this is the cutoff date I have. I have to make a decision at this point, and he went from there. You know? I don't know. You idiots don't know. Shut up. That That's my take on it. Like, if you're crying about it, you're just being an ignorant little crybaby because you're scared because you know that our team's going to come in and kick your ass, which they did. They kicked everyone's ass. Except New York. I would say New York, they didn't kick New York's ass. That was, that was a bloodbath of the series. So what you're saying is that Kucherov was right when he said, this is real bullshit? Number one bullshit. Number one bullshit. Was, this is number one bullshit. That is Dude, that, the best AHL presser ever. Dude, that is the greatest press conference I've ever seen. Uh, oh, I, I, I was watching it live, and I'm just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> my favorite one is like the person who brought up the bottle is like, hey, you know this is a Bud Light. <laughs> it's just like, how much Bud Light did you just fucking sell in that moment? And, and the, the hilarious thing is, is, behind the scenes, after their first cup win in 2020, Kucherov said that he was going to try to come out a little bit more and show a little more of his personality. Because before he won the cup, Kucherov had this uh, reputation as being a bit of a curd mudgeon. He wasn't really, it's not that he wasn't unfriendly, he just was very bearish with the media. He wouldn't say a whole lot, he'd say platitudes, wouldn't really, you know be himself uh and after the first cup win he you know he said to his teammates and you know we heard it through the grapevine that he wanted to kind of you know show his personality even more now he obviously couldn't do that throughout the entire season until basically the playoffs and we saw and we saw that and you saw Kucherov even in pressures before them him being a bit more open because he really is actually a, a pretty funny guy he really is and he's really affable he's just shy it's just how he is but if he warms up to you he's actually a, a very friendly person and he doesn't drink. That's the funny thing. But he does not drink. Really? So when he's downing all those Bud Lights in twenty in twenty twenty and twenty twenty one, like he's just like he's just going like a frat boy. He's just going he's like a frat boy. Up. Oh, he's getting fucked up, man. Absolutely. And you know what? You just want two cops, bro. Do what the fuck you want. Do what the fuck you want. Yeah. What are they gonna say? Oh, you disrespected the game. Fuck you, man. I got two rings. What are you gonna do? Yeah, that's all. That's almost like when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl in Tampa. Remember when he had the Lombardi and he threw it into the other boat? Yeah. What if those guys had decided to do it with what the cup? Gonna, 
It's Tom Brady. He's the winningest quarterback of all time. What are you gonna do to him? He's the literal fucking goat. He's a literal goat, man. You're gonna do shit to him. Yeah. Honestly, I would have laughed so hard if Brady did it and just fell into the water. Oh, I would have died laughing. Or like the Lombardi fucking snaps. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Or or the people who complain. Like, did you see that photo of Pat Maroon having the cup where it got dented at the top of the cup? Yep. People saying, "Oh, we shouldn't have done." I'm like, dude, worse shit has happened to that cup in like 50 years. Oh, yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Well, did you ever hear? It. I was gonna say, did you ever hear the story about when Dallas won it in '99, and the drummer from Pantera had it on his roof, and he threw it into the pool, and he dented it? <laughs> that thing has been dented, thrown. Everything you could possibly imagine has happened to that cup. Like, trust me, what we did to that thing is nothing compared to what guys like in the '60s or '70s did to that damn thing. Like, come on, get over yourself with the sanctity of the cup. Come on, man. Oh, like, there's probably residual. Maybe shit in that thing. Yeah. Maybe shit in that thing, man. Come on. So final question I could probably ask you, Matthew. Say you were on the Tampa Bay Lightning and you had the one day with the Stanley Cup, what would you do with it? Yeah, what would I do with it? Oh, God. Oh, my God. You know what's hilarious? <laughs> I'm going to show you guys this. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Dude, when you guys record this, is it just audio or is it like the whole thing? Sadly, it's just audio. Okay, cool. We should well, be video not, not that it matters, but I'm just going to show you guys this. Okay. Explain it to your listeners, but... Uh, I called it, so I'm explaining it. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What, what, what the hell? Hold on. Shit, it's in my text. There we go. Oh, that is uh, awesome. That is, uh, me and my girlfriend went to Stanley Cup this past weekend at uh, Bolt's Brewfest. Uh, ever since Jeff Finnick took over the Lightning, he's had this yearly Brewfest where a whole bunch of local breweries come together have their beer as samplers and people just come in and drink beer eat food have a good time and obviously they couldn't do it last year because of covid and this is the first time they could actually show the cup so they allowed people to come in for the vip section my girlfriend bought vip tickets so we got in there because my girlfriend doesn't you know she's like if we're going we're going for the real thing not for that half-ass shit my girlfriend doesn't half-ass no she don't fuck around she she full shit stuff not half-asses it when we got there we were in line for like an hour for this damn thing (laughs) oh my god it was ridiculous ridiculous but yeah we took a fishing with the cubs and what would i do with it i don't know man i really don't know i'd probably take it home and by home i mean charleston because that that that's where i was raised i'd probably take it home there to a place it's probably never been and just party hard party like a fucking psychopath <laughs> i mean come on there's no other way to do it then right there's, i mean you, you, there's nothing there's no wrong answer it's whatever the hell you want to do if you want to sit there and just Sunday with the cup? Okay, Sunday with the cup. Yeah. Honestly, I can't wait for the day. And it will, it'll happen one day. Ottawa wins the cup. And all you see is Brady DeChuck drive a beer truck down Elgin Street. Stone Cold Steve Austin style to start spraying people yeah. with the hose. You know, that isn't even hard to imagine. So nope. Brady DeChuck just driving a Zamboni through like some fence with a beer in his hands. Like, fuck it! With a cup right next to him, I'm like, yep, that that is exactly what I would expect Brady Kachuk to do. He'd probably throw it to a kid. He probably would. He probably would. Uh, I feel. I, I hope the kid doesn't get hit though. <laughs> That's 35 pounds, man. That thing's deceptively yeah. heavy. Yeah, no, like I want to see the party with like Brady. Yeah, Brady Kachuk just going full on out. You know what I want to see? What I would love to see, and I, you see glimpses of it on Instagram and stuff like that. Is like what these guys do when they're away from the cameras with the cup. I can only imagine. 
It's the nonsense they do. It's touched everyone's ass. I can guarantee. Oh, that. dude, it's touched so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> like if 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 there any if I say if any channels or anything like beer leaguers, we do some stupid shit. Oh, it's so we do good. Do some absolutely stupid shit. Uh, so Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make before we close out this segment? So, Matthew, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us for today's segment. Now, before we let you go, first of all, where can our listeners find you on social media? And where can they find the SB Nation blog, Raw Charge? All right. So, you can find me on Twitter, at Matthew S. Estevez. Estevez is spelled E-S-T-E-V-E-S. The blog I write for is Raw Charge, for SB Nation, which is at www.rawcharge.com. Also, going to give this a bit of a hit. I'm bringing back my podcast, which is called Charged Up. Um, it'll be restarting here in the next week or so. I'll be having a co-host with me, just like you guys do. I, I probably expect that first episode probably sometime in October. I don't know. I have to figure out the scheduling for that. My schedule is hectic as hell right now, but I'll figure it out. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, I don't really tweet a whole lot right now because I'm enjoying my, my exodus from Twitter. But once the season gets started back up with camps and stuff, uh, especially the real camp, uh, prospect camps right now, I'll be tweeting more about it as much as I can. I mean, well, full-time job can't really have me go to camp, but, well, what can you do? 100%. Now, the final thing we got to ask you, and given that this is the first 82-game season since 1819, and all the teams are going back to their original division formats, how do you see the Tampa Bay Lightning finishing in the Atlantic this coming season? First or second, possibly third. Uh, again, it just—it really depends on how they do with with that board line being gone. How are they going to deal with that much pressure being gone? I expect Boston to take a, a little step back, just because Boston's hung around forever, and at some point, their best players are going to just get too old. Toronto, I think Toronto might might possibly win the division, just because I feel like they're a very good regular season team. Uh, but when things get really tight, they tend to choke. That's just that's the nature of their team. Florida is going to be a spoiler, but I don't know how good Florida is going to be. But I would expect someone between first and third. If I'm going to be really ballsy, I'm going to say second, just because I don't think Tampa's really going to be caring about the division too much. Like their their focus is going to be making the playoffs and then making sure they're ready for the playoffs. That's that's their focus. That was their focus this past year. I mean, people are making a big deal about them not winning the Central Division and Carolina won it, and they went on and won another cup. Like winning the division doesn't matter. Making yeah. the playoffs matters and playing good hockey matters so in that sense i would say probably second is the most reasonable spot to go yeah. uh but it wouldn't surprise me if they're anywhere between first and third just so you know the panthers guys said they're winning the division this year the panthers were winning the division this year do you have any words okay. on that <laughs> okay okay yeah look man it's it's great that florida finally got their shit together and it's actually a competent hockey team but you couldn't beat us when you outplayed us and you can win the division. That's cool, man. Division championships don't mean shit. There's one thing that matters. Rings. It's the only thing that matters. So, figure out your goaltending. Stop starting Kowalski first off. <laughs> Maybe then you'll actually be worth a damn. Matthew, Maybe then. thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
Closing out our 2021-22 season preview show, representing the Florida Panthers of the Atlantic Division, is a staff writer for the Panthers SB Nation blog, Litter Box Cats. Please welcome to the show from Weston, Florida, Todd Little. Todd, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. So Todd, we're really excited to have you on the program, and I know we were talking a little bit before we hit record how this is the very first time we've ever got a chance to talk with a Florida Panthers fan on the show, and somebody who writes for the team. And one of the great things that I love doing with these segments, especially when we get to work with people we've never worked with before, is we like to do a little bit of getting to know them. And one of the questions I always love asking whether it's a podcaster or a blogger, is how they became a fan of the team that they cheer for. So, in saying that, I would love to know how you became a fan of the Florida Panthers. I was a hockey fan a long time before the, the Panthers even came around. So, I was actually born down here. I was born in Miami. And for a couple of years in the late 70s, I lived in Birmingham when the WHA was around. So, that was my first... My first team was the Birmingham Bulls. And then... Probably around the same time the WHA went out of business, we moved back to South Florida, and I and I became an Oilers fan, you know, because it had to be one of the four WHA teams. So I was an Oilers fan up until 93 when the Panthers came around, and then we finally got our own team, and, you know, from then on, I've been a Panthers fan from day one. Yeah, and I mean, and I can understand being a Panthers fan. It can't be easy, right? Especially with how it seemed like the Panthers were on a right track at the beginning, but then... Just over time, they really haven't gotten much of a footing in the NHL. No, they haven't. It's, it's, it's been rough. I mean, there, there were a few years, like, kind of around the 2010 era, you know, 2010, 2011, where even I was just like, yeah, this team, like, I've kind of had enough of it. And that's around when I, I got into writing for the site, you know. Like, I found the site, because a lot of the... Now, I know you just talked a little bit about writing for litter box cats. And one of the big things I wanted to talk with you about, especially living up here in Canada, I actually want to talk about the state of hockey in Southern Florida. Now, before we get into talking about the Panthers, we got to talk about that. One of the main reasons I want to bring this up is because, like I said, especially living up here in Canada, the perception of hockey in South Florida is not exactly seen in the most positive of lights. You know, despite the fact the Florida Panthers went to the cup finals in 1996, the Panthers' time in Florida has mostly been seen as a disaster, whether that's due to bad ownership, bad management, bad trades that sets the team back several years, and just an overall lack of fan support due to the lack of on-ice success, but can also be contributed to the successes of other South Florida teams like the Miami Heat when LeBron James was there. In saying that, what is the state of hockey like in South Florida today, and do you see it only rising as the Panthers now have achieved sustained success? Stanley Cup, you know, early in their existence, 
And then it kind of tapered off. And for the, for the reasons you touched upon, you know, bad ownership, bad management. And, you know, I, th- I think a lot of teams that are based in the United States that if you miss the playoffs, you know, 10 years in a row, like you're going to have trouble drawing fans, you know, no, ma- no matter where you are. If the team's that badly run, you're going to chase away fans. But, you know, what, what people in Canada might not realize is, is there, there is a contingent of diehard hockey fans down here that will always support the team, you know, pretty much no matter what, you know, whether it's, whether that number is 8,000 or 10,000 or 15,000, those hardcore fans are down here where the team lost, you know, lost out is on the casual sports fans, you know, the guys that, you know, like hockey a little bit, but don't care about if the team's, you know, not doing well, but we'll come back if the team is doing well or if they're making the playoffs consistently, you get those, you get those people back in the building. And, and, and that's, that's basically where they, where they have had trouble is they lost those fans that add on to, to the, you know, 10 or 12,000 diehards to get, to get a set, you know, to get consistent sellouts. When you're not pulling in those other five or 10,000 fans that will come to the building if the team's good, you know, that, that causes problems. Especially looking at the teams in in Miami, the big one for me is the Florida Marlins because when you saw that the Marlins had the success of winning the World Series in '97, but then ownership, like the Wayne Heisinga era, just decided to blow the team up even after yeah. winning it, and then yeah, the casual they lost the casual fans, right? Yeah, they've done that a couple of times too. You know, they've, they've won titles and, and been good, and then just So the 2021 season for the Florida Panthers was a fantastic one overall, going 37, 14, and 5 in the regular season, which was good enough for second in the Central Division, making the playoffs for the second straight season. Florida's top guys produced with Jonathan Huberdeau leading the way with 61 points, Mackenzie Wagner stepping up in the absence of Aaron Ekblad, and former Suns goalie Chris Dreiger coming up huge, going 14, 6, and 3 with a 927 save percentage and a 207 goals against. In the playoffs, however, Florida would fall to the Tampa Bay Lightning in six games in their first playoff series versus them, which we here on the show dubbed the Sunshine State Showdown. Heading into the offseason, there was much excitement surrounding the Panthers as they are now seen as a legit threat in the Eastern Conference, which was only boosted by the big acquisition of Sam Reinhart. What was your thoughts overall on the 2021 season for the Panthers, and what kind of expectations should fans have on them this season?
Um, and who knows, maybe things would have turned out a little different if they had a little more confidence after winning the series. But I think they played really good, good at times in that series. And, you know, a couple things swung the series in the Lightning's way. I think if the Panthers would have won the first game of the series, which they blew very late in the game, the Lightning scored a late goal to tie it and a late goal to win it. If I remember things correctly, I think if they would have won that first game, it might have turned out a little differently. Well, I know even for ourselves, when we were talking about that series on the podcast, I remember Tim and I both saying, like, we've been watching hockey a long time. That had to be one of the best playoff series that we have seen because, yeah, you had the Tampa Bay Lightning, who's a juggernaut, but you have this Florida Panthers team that everybody kind of slept on despite how much talent they have. But when it comes to the playoff run, I honestly feel if they had strong goaltending, I think they could have upset Tampa Bay. Is that a hot take on your for you, or do you feel that's a legit comment? I think it's a legit comment. I, I thought I thought down here we called him Grieger. I know everybody pronounces his last name a different way, but I thought if they would have started Grieger to start the series, I think they would have had a better chance to win it. I mean, Bobrovsky made some great saves in Game One, some flashy saves, but he also gave up. What was the score of that game? Five to four, I think. So he gave up five goals and they lost. And then Drieger played, I thought he played very well in game two, and they lost that like three to one, I think. But he he should I thought he should have started the series, and it, it might have turned out different if he did. And then, then they just went back and forth between all three goalies after that. And, um, you know, and Spencer Knight got in there and he played really well. So, you know, I guess that's good for the future. But, you know, I, I thought Drieger should have been the starter in that series, although... You know, obviously Bobrovsky's more experienced, and I'm sure a lot of people disagree with that take, but I thought Drieger should have started the series. So this recent NHL offseason was a noted one for a number of reasons, and one of the big reasons was big name switching teams with Florida making a big splash, acquiring Sam Reinhart from the Buffalo Sabres for goalie Devin Levy and a 2022 first overall or first round pick. Since going second overall to Buffalo in 2014, Reinhardt has been a consistent 20 to 25 goal scorer on the team that has struggled big time to produce offense. His arrival is a huge boost to Florida's top six, which is which already has Sasha Barkov and Jonathan Huberto. In regards to the Reinhardt trade, what was your thoughts on it, and what kind of expectations should Panther fans have for Sam Reinhardt this year? I thought it was a, a good trade. I mean, if, if you know, now's the time for Florida to make a move and, and give up a first-round pick, you know, because they have a really solid team now. So I thought it was a good trade. You know, I, I would expect that he'll score at least 30 goals for the Panthers this year. If he can score 25 in Buffalo, I don't see why he's not going to score 30, 35, 35. But I, sh- I, should, I should, like, you know, take a little grain of salt with my own comment because I know sometimes as somebody that play, I play a lot of ball hockey, you know, and I'm not the best player, and when the best players are out, you know, like, you know, we were on a little bit of a lockdown for a while last year with the pandemic, so I, I know, like, as not that great of a player myself, but I know when those guys are out, and I'm getting, see, you know, seeing the ball more, I'll score more goals, so there's there could be some aspect of that to, to Reinhardt's numbers last year, you know, he's just getting more chances with, with Eichel out, or you know, just getting more chances because he's he's a talented guy on a on a on a pretty lousy team. So, you know, like, am I expecting him to score forty or fifty goals? No, but I don't see there's any reason why he can't at least duplicate what he's been doing and, and better that to, to some extent. With the huge positive steps 
Florida took this past season with a, as a team. One guy who, to me anyway, he seems to be kind of be holding the team back is goaltender Sergei Bobrovsky. When Bob hit the uh, free agency market in 2019, fans everywhere legit raised their eyebrows when the Florida Panthers of all teams was the team to land him. And then they saw the contract. And his tenure with Florida hasn't exactly been what fans have hoped for so far. He hasn't played like the superstar goalie fans were helping, was hoping for. And it's only been made worse by the fact that we've talked about Chris Drieger and Spencer Knight have both outplayed him. What has been your thoughts on Bobrovsky's tenure in Florida? And what does he need to do to have a bounce back this coming season?
So something similar to Jake Allen backing up Carey Price in Montreal then. Yeah, so, yeah, something along those lines. Like a, like a Morazic or an, or an Antibiranto. Like I, I wanted him to get one of those guys, you know, which might be a little unrealistic salary cap-wise on my part. Or, you know, people you know people down here just tend to think if you've got a really, you know, good prospect, like, you know, everybody's like, Spencer Knight is ready. Like, he's the guy. This guy's played five games. You know, he hasn't even played an AHL game yet. I mean, I'm I'm hoping everybody's right about that, and he comes in here and he's great. You know, he's the next Tom Barrasso, or you know, just a young goalie that's just ready to come in the league and, and be a number one goalie. But that doesn't happen that often, you know. So it's it's a lot it's a lot to put on him unless somehow Bobrovsky can get back to being more of, of the guy that was in Columbus than he's been here. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't definitely doesn't help that there's been a bit of a goalie graveyard in Florida with like Scott Darling still on the books. It, can you even bury Bobrovsky if he doesn't come back? Is there a chance he goes to Robita Island? I mean, I guess, but like I said, he's he's fine in the regular season. Like I, I don't think the Panthers are going to have any problems in the regular season. Like usually the thing being a Panther fan before the season starts is you're like, can these guys find a way to like get into the playoffs and maybe make some noise. Whereas this year, if they don't make the playoffs this year, I'd be, I'd be pretty shocked, you know, even though it's a really strong Eastern Conference. I mean, this, this looks like a pretty damn good team. You know, it's the problem for me with this team is when they get to the playoffs. You know, is the goaltending going to be good enough? And is, is the defense tough enough, you know, to beat a team like the Lightning in the playoffs? You know, that would, that would be the two questions that I have for this team. One thing that as Ottawa fans we were watching last season was uh, kind of the roller coaster that Anthony Duclair was on where we qualify him, he says no, wants more money, ends up at the end of the season with just a million dollars out of Florida. And, uh, he played really well. Uh, watching him a lot in Florida, I think you guys got to steal at $3 million for Anthony Duclair. Are you excited for him in the next season? Where do you think he's going based on his play in Florida? Yeah, he, you know, I know, I know his goal scoring you know, was down a little bit last year. He had a really low shooting percentage, but he played really well all year. Like, he's so fast, and he created, he created so, many, so many chances. you got to think that this year he'll just score more goals by virtue of his shooting percentage getting back to, you know, where it is for him usually. But he's a really good player, and he fit in, he fit in really well down here. For a million bucks last year, yeah, I mean, every every move Bill Zito made last year, but those kind of moves like Verhege and Duclair, like, just worked out so well for the team. Like everything he touched, you know, was just turned out pretty golden last year. So just a side question here, because you brought up GM Bill Zito. When he was working for Columbus, he was known to help the light, help the lightning, help the Blue Jackets sign their players to team-friendly contracts, given his background as an agent. Do you see going forward that that's going to be the mindset he has in Florida? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it was so, there's so much money, you know, devoted to Bobrovsky already. You know, you have, you have that really bloated tract on the books already. So, yeah, he's going to have to do that to some extent. But I, I guess, and I, I feel like the, the signings that he made with, you know, you know, trading for Reinhardt and signing him to a new contract and extending some of the guys that were already here, I think he did pretty good money-wise. Not, you know, not miserably, you know, not like a Boston or, you know, like teams like that or the Islanders that get these guys to sign for, you know, money where you're like, wow, 
Now, in regard, sorry, in regarding of contract extensions, as a fan, like, what would you be comfortable with, given them? This upcoming season will be a notable one for fans as they finally get to see 20-year-old Spencer Knight play in the NHL full-time. While Knight only played in four games last season, he did go undefeated with a 2-3-2 goals against and a 9-19 save percentage. This season, as I said, will be his first full season in the NHL, most likely backing up Sergei Bobrovsky. But he's in a prime position, I feel, to actually win the starting job if Bobrovsky has another down season. Coming into the year, what kind of expectations do you and Panther fans have for Spencer Knight? I expect him to do what he's always done, which is this guy wins at every level. You know, he seems to excel at every level. As a junior in college, he was really good. You know, what we what we've seen of him with the Panthers, I mean, he's been he's been excellent. He looks like a veteran. You know, he's cool as a cucumber. You know, he he was four. You know, won all his regular season games. Won the first playoff game he played. And, just looked really good doing it. You know, the, the interesting thing to see will be how they split up the playing time. And, you know, at, at least at first, because you got to figure, you know, just by virtue of being a veteran, Bobrovsky's going to get, you know, the lion's share of the starts to start the season, you know, the first month or two. But I guess, I guess we'll see, you know, how, how good Bobrovsky does, I guess, will just affect how much we'll see at night. But, you know, I, I would imagine that he'll get to start at least 30 games this year, 25, 30 games. And then if Bobrovsky, you know, is having a rough go of it, that will definitely change and he'll play more. Because the, one, the one good thing I'll say, as opposed to some of the past coaches that we've had in here, is they're definitely playing guys based on performance a little bit more with Quenville here and a little bit more since Udo took over than we've seen in the past where it's been tough for some of the younger guys or more unheralded guys to get ice time, you know, because there's been guys who are just making more money and they're just going to play no matter what. That's That seems to have changed a little bit, and that's a very good thing. 
So Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make before we close out part two of our season preview show? No, uh, this has been a great interview and I actually think I've learned a lot about the Panthers now. So I'm very happy we had the chance to talk. So Todd, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us and do this segment. Now, before we let you go, first of all, where can our listeners find you on social media and where can they find Litterbox Cats? litterboxcats.com uh, that's the website on social media it's at litterboxcats and there's also a litterboxcats Facebook page and the final question we got to ask now we've been asking everybody at the end of these segments this is the first full 82 game season since the 18-19 season and the Florida Panthers as we were talking about is returning to the Atlantic Division come April 2022 where do you see the Florida Panthers finishing in the Atlantic Okay, you know what? It's funny you say that because my take for this year, I said I think Florida will take the Atlantic. That's been my take. Yeah, I think they're going to win the division. I think the Lightning are going to take the regular season a little less serious. They, they know like all they have to do is make the playoffs, so I don't, I don't think they're going to be busting their balls to win this division, but I think the Panthers will. Todd, thank you so much for doing this. Hey guys, this is Ian Mendes from The Athletic, and you're listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. All right, we are back. Big thank you once again to Melissa Burgess, Jake Rivard, Mark Allred, Matthew Estevez, and Todd Little for taking time out of their schedule to join us for these segments. Boy, talk about a crazy three hours, hey man. Jesus. Yeah, it was a lot of fun though. It was a lot of fun. It, it was. It was a lot of fun. But I'll tell you, I really am looking forward to going back to just editing single hour episodes now because I will never complain about doing this, even though I did it in sections. If I had to do it the full three hours, no, <laughs> I would just be sitting here going crazy. I could not do it. Yeah, I've done that once for my other show and it's tough. It is. And believe me, you know, and I've been lucky because I haven't really had to do three hour episodes here. I think the longest we did was there was an episode that was like two and a half hours. Or so and I did it in one sitting and that was a bit of a pain in the ass. But honestly, I'm just going to go ahead and just repeat what you were saying. Like, it was a lot of fun to do these segments. I can't thank the people enough for coming on. I really, really hope that we get to work with them again. And honestly, this is probably the best way to kick off the 2021-22 NHL season. But not only that, our fifth season of podcasting. Like, that's just nuts to think. Yeah. Like, where did all that time go? I know. But not only that, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, this season is the 30th official season of the Ottawa Senators as well. You know, it's kind of funny because... Feels like yesterday we were celebrating the 25th anniversary of the first year of our show. I know, right? It, it just seems crazy. It seems nuts to me that we were just these, I don't want to say young kids because we were in our mid 20s. Yeah. Now we're in our late 20s and we're old and we're still doing a podcast that we enjoy. So, yeah. yeah so, hate that, young people. Distant <laughs> disapproval. It's a good way to be. 
So Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on these segments before we close it out for another evening? Nope. I'm good. First of all, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. You can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter. At Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901 Honey Badger. I'm at Great White Gipster, GR8 W-A-T-E Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about Part two of our 2021-2022 season preview show. Issues an email. Third Light Plug Sensecast at gmail.com. Until next time, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys. <laughs> <laughs>